have a question for you. What would it take for you to pick up a weapon and head out the door to fight against the troops of the government under whose flag you had been born and raised to adulthood? Would anything ever cause you to take that course of action? That's a question you're never really encouraged to ask, but I think it's an interesting thought experiment. Certainly, you're not ever encouraged to ask this question if, like most people around the world, you've attended schools that were run or at least highly regulated by the state. Parents, themselves typically the products of such schools, rarely encourage their children to ask these sorts of questions either. But I think they're important questions to ask. They cause one to think about such questions as, what is the nature of freedom and what things are worth fighting for? When, if ever, does the government that presumes to rule you deserve your loyalty and obedience? Now, I'm not telling anybody to rise up and fight against anybody. Um, I'm just encouraging you to think hypothetically about these questions, because these are important things to think about that you're never really encouraged to think about. And of course, these questions tie directly into this episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. Prof. CJ here, your one-man revolution, your guerrilla scholar warrior, your renaissance man, frantically tending a last flickering flame of illumination in this new dark age here on the Dangerous History Podcast. And this is episode 59 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This is part two of my overview of the American Revolution, looking at what I consider to be the crucial year of the whole thing. So that question, what, if anything, would ever cause you to be willing to actively oppose, even violently, your quote-unquote own government? That's a question that I often will ask my students in my classes. What I'll do is I'll give them a little pre-printed questionnaire with just some basic questions. And uh, I don't have one in front of me, unfortunately. But if I recall, it's something like, would you ever consider taking up arms against your own government? And then the next question is, if not, why not? If so, what things might cause you to consider that course of action? Parentheses, be specific. I had to put that parentheses, be specific there because, of course, in the past, I've had students put things that are so generic as to be virtually meaningless. Say things like, if the government was doing things that I thought were bad, well, I guarantee you, at any given moment, the government is doing stuff that you consider bad, no matter who you are. But anyway, I have the students answer these questionnaires, not putting their names on them or anything like that. Then I collect them and then we talk about it. And of course, I don't put anybody on the spot, anything like that. But what's interesting is the number of students I've had after after having these discussions who will, you know, come to talk to me in my office or come up to me after class and say something like, you know, no one has ever encouraged me to think about those things. And I'm glad that we did. So I figured I'd throw that out there as a rhetorical question, a thought experiment to hopefully get you thinking and get, put yourself in the shoes of these people in 1775. 1775 is the year that the people, some of them at least, become truly the protagonists of history. Under no one's orders beyond at most their local town militia captain or their local committee of safety, average people mostly small farmers with a scattering of small business people and artisans and uh, professionals mixed in with them, average people took matters into their own hands and fired on the king's troops, the troops of the very government under whose flag these people had been born and raised. 
All the while, the people took action. The so-called leaders, quote-unquote, accomplished surprisingly little that year, as we'll see. And at least some of the things that they did do were actually counter to the revolutionary spirit of the average people who were out there taking matters into their own hands, not waiting for orders from fancy guys in powdered wigs and knee breeches in Philadelphia. It was the height of revolution. It was the dawn of counter-revolution. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The year was 1770-something. Oh, yeah, five. 1775. That's the one. I jump into the narrative, I just want to address something on which I feel strongly that ties into both this episode and history in general. I think that the typical top-down or great man style of history, which when looking at this period in American history, of course, typically manifests itself as tunnel vision, focusing almost exclusively on the so-called founding fathers, which itself is a, is a horrible manipulative term that you know, I use just because it's it's out there, but I use it in kind of a cynical way a lot of the time, understanding that this is this is largely um, a story constructed originally by the guys themselves to think of them as these great men, these founding fathers, these leaders. But I think that this sort of history, whether it's intended to or not, and I suspect at least in some cases it is intended, um, has the effect of keeping regular people like you and me in our place. They build monuments to these great men. They carve their faces in mountains. They build temples to them. And what it amounts to is a form of propaganda. Now, making temples and monuments and things to politicians and generals and so on is an ancient practice that goes back thousands of years. And it's propaganda. It's, in fact, one of the earliest and most effective forms of propaganda since the beginnings of so-called human civilization. And of course, the leadership class, whether we're talking about politicians or about generals, is always, by definition, a tiny, tiny percentage, uh, typically a fraction of a percent of the population of a given polity. So this deification of leaders is a way to make the people feel small and insignificant and believe that they need someone to control them, to tell them what to do, to lead them and so on. In fact, I think this is how hero worship in general works. Now, don't get me wrong. I think you should have people whom you respect for their achievements and whom you seek to emulate in certain ways. You know, if there's something, if there's somebody who's really good at something that you want to get really good at, there's nothing wrong with admiring that person's accomplishments and seeking to emulate them in your own way. But the typical hero worship that culture seem to wallow in gives regular people, you know, 95 to 99% of people, the impression that only great men or leaders matter and that us regular people need to just stand around and wait for the correct great man to ride up on a giant white horse to tell us what to do to lead us, to shuffle us around as pawns on his chessboard. This, I believe, is meant to incapacitate you. And most of all, it's meant to give you the impression that 
you need leaders that they're vital to your very existence, let alone your happiness, and to discourage you from ever thinking those dangerous thoughts, why can't I just lead myself? Well, I, for one, utterly reject that view of history. That doesn't mean I'm going to ignore the leaders. Obviously, they matter. But to get completely tunnel vision fixated on them, and even worse, to, de to deify and hero worship them, is not good for the cause of self-government, by which I mean not voting every few years. Self-government, I mean each individual governing him or herself. I believe everybody who's not like seriously mentally ill or impaired or something like that is capable of running their own individual life and that no one is better qualified than an individual to run their own life. But what prevents a lot of people from understanding that, from having the, I don't know what the term would be, self-esteem, self-efficacy, something like that, um, to really take the reins of their own life and be the protagonist in their own story. In, in a significant way and not just do what society or the state or whoever uh, pressures you into, but to really govern yourself, to really lead yourself. Uh, the only thing that prevents more people from doing it than currently do is psychologically. It's like having a governor on an engine, right? It prevents the engine from going above a certain RPM and a certain speed. Well, this crazy hero worship and leader worship and so on um, that gets so out of hand, not just, oh, we'll admire people who accomplish things or who are good at things. Again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all, but this crazy over-the-top deification of leaders, which we still engage in, and if you don't believe me, just watch how the president, uh, whoever he might be at the moment, um, when he shows up somewhere, they roll out the red carpet, they stop traffic for miles around, they strike up the band, they play his theme music, everybody comes out and, you know, toadies up to him and so on. This leader worship complex, it's unnecessary. It's a psychological trick. And so people, I believe, are fully capable of leading themselves they just need to slough off that governor in their psychology, that limiter that prevents them from realizing that you are fully capable of running your own life and making your own decisions, and that you don't need a bunch of fancy pants great men to move you around like pieces on a chessboard. So again, while I'm happy to respect anyone who's accomplished great or even good things, I believe that the only leader every individual of sound mind truly needs is him or herself, and that ultimately being led by anyone else is not only unhelpful, but downright dangerous. So bringing it back to the American Revolutionary story, I would say, while the Founding Fathers certainly matter, and some of them were even fairly decent guys, we're not going to be deifying them here in any fashion. So if that's what you came here for, sorry, the door in this instance is the stop button on whatever device you happen, happen to be listening to the podcast on. This is not going to be an orgy of Founding Fathers worship. I'll say good things about them when they deserve it, and I will say bad things about them when they deserve that. We will be fair, we will be accurate, we will be honest, and we will not just mindlessly imbibe the mythological narratives that are typically pumped into you. So for the rest of you, 
For those of you who are not currently hitting the stop button because you thought you were in for a deification orgy of founding father worship, um, for, for the rest of you who did not hit the exit button, come with me and let's continue our Dangerous History podcast coverage of the American Revolution looking at the crucial year, 1775. Um, but before we jump into 70, 1775 itself, we have to wrap up a few things that happened towards the end of 1774 that I didn't really mention last time because of the, uh, the sake of time. Before the First Continental Congress adjourned in October of 1774, it agreed upon a non-importation agreement, whereby the colonists, at least those who were sympathetic to the resistance cause would agree to boycott British goods and not participate in importing stuff from Britain and so on, and basically economically boycott the mother country if Britain did not repeal the coercive acts uh, by December of 1774, which they did not. However, the Continental Congress had no real coercive authority against the people of the various colonies. And so this a uh, non-importation agreement would rely on local compliance. So many historians, including even mainstream historians, who you know are not really rebellious in their thinking and writing about the revolution, uh, still will say that the Continental Congress, as it existed before and during the Revolutionary War, it's it's not even clear whether it's really a government at all. And, I, and in fact, there's a strong case to be made that the Continental Congress was not really a state or a government. As such, it lacked coercive authority on lots of important things. And most of what, you know, governing was really taking place was at the colonial, what eventually became known as the state level. And, uh, and, and in fact, a lot of it even at the local level, at the level of the county or of the town. As Murray Rothbard puts it in Conceived in Liberty, Volume 3, quote, Since the measures of enforcement of the boycott were to be purely local and voluntary among the people, the First Continental Congress could in no proper sense be regarded as a dual governmental institution, end quote. Instead, Rothbard characterizes it as, in his words, quote, a permanent revolutionary assembly, end quote. Compliance with this uh, boycott non-importation agreement would be carried out by local committees of compliance or, you know, things called uh, terms along that along those lines you know might be called something different in a particular locality and uh, interestingly women played a major role in helping to enforce these agreements and while there was some coercion uh, taking place against people who were not participating in the boycotts they were surprisingly mild compared with the uh, bloodthirstiness of many other revolutions in other parts of the world since Oftentimes, uh, it relied on nothing more than ostracism and shaming and shunning, and occasionally would involve some sort of small amount of violence or threat of violence against persons or property. But there's nothing resembling, for example, the great fear during the French Revolution or, or the various purges against the enemies of the Bolsheviks during the Russian Revolution. Murray Rothbard talks about this towards the end of Volume 3 of Conceived in Liberty. Quote, in addition to boycotting and ostracizing violators, the same methods were used against persons of known Tory leanings. By the way, that means loyalist. While, while historians have remarked on the paradox of a libertarian movement using coercive means against dissidents, the remarkable thing is the degree of libertarian means that this movement used in pursuit of its ends. 
Never before in history had so much reliance been placed on such nonviolent methods of mass struggle as the boycott, and on such libertarian and nonviolent means of enforcing the boycott as secondary boycotts, social ostracism, blacklists, and public obloquy. This unprecedented constancy of libertarian ends and means, especially for a revolutionary mass movement of such size and scope, was marred only around the edges by such minor excesses as the use of the tar pot, the rail, and the feathers. The whole association movement of 1774-75 to is a remarkable testament to the strength of libertarian ideals permeating the revolutionary era." End quote. Again, there, there were occasions of violence, but those were surprisingly not that common. And very often with just a bit of social pressure, um, maybe boycotting of their neighbors, a person would uh, recant and join the rebel cause. And there's lots of instances of this covered in books such as American Insurgents, American Patriots by T.H. Breen that I talked about a bit uh, last episode. The fact of the matter is that things like social ostracism and shunning and so on actually work very well, especially in, in fairly tight-knit communities. And even in some of the larger towns where you might expect people not to be quite as cohesive socially. Although compliance with and enforcement of the boycott varied uh, quite a bit from colony to colony and even from town to town, nonetheless, it was very effective overall. Uh, American colonial imports from Britain declined by well over 90%. So this really kicked the British in what you might consider the nards uh, to make a Monster Squad reference, which of course is in the pocketbook. This is the heart of their empire. It's built on mercantilist finance in which the colonies play the important role of providing raw materials to and protected markets for exports from the mother country. Well, now a significant percentage of the population is refusing to participate in the system any longer. As Murray Rothbard puts it in Conceives in Liberty, quote, These measures serve to radicalize the entire continent and to build an intricate network of spontaneous grassroots revolutionary institutions, often virtually replacing constituted authority with quasi-anarchic leadership, end quote. And these sorts of economic measures often have the effect of making lots of people who are not and never will be combatants nonetheless feel like they personally are a part of the struggle, a part of the cause. And you can see examples of this more recently in history. For example, uh, during World War II, the rationing um, actually had the effect on many Americans and similar effects in, in countries like Britain as well have been documented where wartime rationing actually has this weird psychological effect of not harming morale, but actually in many cases buoying morale because people feel like they're part of the fight, even though they might never actually face any enemy bullets or anything like that. But that by sacrificing and doing without you know, luxury and comfort goods and, and things like this and having to skimp even on necessities. They feel like they're a part of the team effort. And so a lot of times uh, things like rationing during a war might even have more reason for um, what you might consider propaganda measures rather than purely logistical measures. And that seems to have been the case during World War II. A lot of goods were rationed that really didn't need to be rationed purely from the standpoint of, you know, war resources. But 
but the rationing, at least a big part of why it was put into effect, was to make the whole country. You know, in the case of the United States, the war was almost entirely uh, on the other side of the world, talking about World War II. So, you know, only military-aged males are going to be uh, directly participating in the war in any direct sense. So rationing was a way to make the women, the children, the elderly, and so on still feel like they're a part of the team. You know, it's just like painting your face to go to a big sports game or whatever. This happened in the months and weeks just prior to the outbreak of actual fighting. And you can see this, and this has been going on to a degree uh, ever since the Stamp Act in the 1760s. And uh, T.H. Breen's American Insurgents, American Patriots, and also his earlier book that garnered a lot of attention uh, maybe a couple decades ago, I think, uh, The Marketplace of Revolution, talks about how consumer choices were actually an important revolutionary mobilization factor. But still, even with all the tensions growing, not many people were urging armed struggle. The only person of any prominence who was openly urging armed struggle was a guy named Christopher Gadsden of Charleston, South Carolina, who's an interesting character. He was, I think, basically the leader of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Sons of Liberty, and he's been referred to as the Sam Adams of the South. Um, interesting character. You don't hear that much about him unless you really dig into things like the history of the Sons of Liberty. Uh, he was involved in the Congress, but other than him, no one in the Congress or in really prominent positions was openly stating a desire for armed struggle. Even the Bostonian radicals, who oftentimes uh, appear to be the most hot-headed, you know, quick to advocate things like independence and revolution. Even the Bostonian radicals, by contrast, in late 1774, early 1775, they were kind of restrained because they were very concerned that all measures they take would be perceived by both the um, the people of the other colonies other than Massachusetts and also by the world, including even the potentially friendly uh, people that were in Britain, that all the measures they were taking were purely defensive so that if any violence did break out, it would be clear to everybody that the British government was the aggressor and not the colonists of Massachusetts. Now, in late 1774 and into early 1775, one of the most provocative things that British authorities were doing, uh, especially in Massachusetts and then to a lesser degree in some of the other colonies, was going after weapons and ammunition. Many of the smarter British officers understood that they faced a different situation in North America than they did in a place like Ireland, for example, in that uh, access to weaponry was widespread in North America in a way that it wasn't in Ireland or even in Scotland. And so, as I've mentioned before, General Gage was really trying to avoid an outbreak of, of large-scale violence. And so he set upon, set upon this policy of trying to disarm the colonists. And in this, he was fully backed up and aided by the British government back in London. The fact that Gage was not only looking to... Um, you know, enforce the intolerable acts and also limit the ability of colonists to be armed, but also that he was um, using the military to enforce all these different edicts was really troubling to many of the colonists. 
and not just in Massachusetts, but even as far away as the South. So, for example, a newspaper essay uh, published in a South Carolina paper and also reprinted in Virginia uh, was particularly tough against the notion of the military enforcing these laws and edicts that themselves were considered to be unconstitutional. So this South Carolina newspaper editorial says, quote, When an army is sent to enforce laws, it is always an evidence that either the lawmakers are conscious that they had no clear and indisputable right to make those laws, or that they are bad and oppressive. Wherever the people themselves have had a hand in making laws, according to the first principles of our Constitution, there is no danger of non-submission, nor can there be any need of an army to enforce them, end quote. But that's exactly what Gage was going to do. So on September 1st, 1774, uh, something occurred that got known as the powder alarm. This was Gage's first attempt at confiscating gunpowder. And I mentioned last episode why gunpowder was an easier target for confiscation than guns themselves, given that powder was typically stored um, in large amounts only at the powder house of a town or city. So on September 1st, 1774, General Gage in Boston sent 260 redcoats uh, in boats up the Mystic River a short distance um, from Boston to seize several hundred barrels of powder that were stored at the powder house in Charlestown, just across the bay from Boston proper. And this event was successful in confiscating the powder, and it's actually what kicked off the rumors that I mentioned last time about the false alarm that supposedly Boston had been destroyed by a naval bombardment that mobilized thousands and thousands of militia from all over New England to go try and get revenge, Uh, which fizzled out, of course, when they found out that the rumors that Boston had been destroyed were false, but which showed what these people were capable of in terms of mobilization. So this powder alarm was actually what kicked off that rumor and kicked off that mobilization. And of course, it also significantly upped the tensions in the minds of resistance-minded colonists that the British were really going too far by trying to defang them, by trying to disarm them. The powder alarm also kicked off what become known as the Suffolk Resolves, um, put together by the local revolutionary authorities in Suffolk County of Massachusetts, which is the county which includes Boston. These are later endorsed by the Continental Congress. And a lot of these Suffolk Resolves specifically talk about Gage's attempts to confiscate powder and so on. And um, one of the clauses, one of the, one of the paragraphs in it is this, quote, that whereas our enemies have flattered themselves that they shall make an easy prey of this numerous, brave, and hardy people from an apprehension that they are unacquainted with military discipline, we therefore, for the honor, defense, and security of this county and province, advise, as it has been recommended, to take away all commissions from the officers of militia of the militia, that those who now hold commissions or such other persons be elected in each town as officers in the militia as shall be judged of sufficient capacity for that purpose, and who have evidenced themselves the inflexible friends to the rights of the people and the inhabitants of those towns and districts who are qualified do use their utmost diligence to acquaint themselves with the art of war as soon as possible and do for that purpose appear under arms at least once every week. Now, not only was Gage going after large uh, caches of powder at at powder houses, he also began instituting small scale uh, warrantless searches of 
individuals entering or exiting the city of Boston by land or by sea, and this also enraged many people. In October of 1774, back in London, the king declared a ban for practical purposes on importation of guns and ammo to North America. Basically, what the order actually said was that um, nobody would be allowed to bring weapons or gunpowder into North America without having a special government permit. But as David Koppel puts it, who's the author of an interesting article published several years ago in the Charleston Law Review about British gun control efforts in America prior to the revolution. By the way, I'll I'll link to that article in the show notes. It's available online as a PDF. Um, As David Koppel puts it, quote, Read literally, the order only required a government permit to export arms or ammunition from Great Britain to America. In practice, no permits were granted, end quote. Kind of reminds me of the uh, the marijuana tax law of the 1930s, the original beginning of marijuana prohibition in the United States, which uh, said you had to have some kind of special tax to to uh, have marijuana legally, and then they just made it impossible to ever pay that tax and get the get the certificate or whatever that said you had paid it. Of course, very quickly after this order was proclaimed in North America, many people throughout the colonies, including even such a not-that-revolutionary guy at the time as Ben Franklin, uh, quickly became involved in smuggling weapons and ammo from countries like Spain, France, and Holland. And one of the more coveted and later probably one of the more common um, arms toted by Americans during the the Revolutionary War was the French Charleville musket. And I've heard a historical firearms expert refer to this as the first, quote, assault weapon to be banned in North America. And of course, that that ban didn't stop many thousands of Americans from getting their hands on them as as the uh, the revolution got going. Now, this this ban on gunpowder and guns going into North America uh, was supposed to last for six months, and it kept getting renewed every six months, actually, until the official end of the Revolutionary War in 1783. Another incident happened in December of 1774. This one actually involved Paul Revere, that famous Boston silversmith who was part of the insurgent communication network in and out of that city. Paul Revere was dispatched on, this is one of his many rides uh, carrying information prior to April 19, 1775. Paul Revere was dispatched by the Boston Committee of Correspondence to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to warn patriots there of British ships that were headed to the fort near Portsmouth, Fort William and Mary, in order to seize a bunch of guns, cannons, and uh, powder that were stored there. They were worried that, you know, rebellious-minded colonists might get their hands on that hardware. On December 14th, having been tipped off by Paul Revere, hundreds of New Hampshire patriots moved all the stuff before the British arrived. And uh, the, the New Hampshire newspaper, The Gazette, praised the action of moving the powder and weapons and reminded readers of what had happened to Carthage, actually, uh, after they gave up their weapons to the Romans. The Romans, you know, they'd surrendered their, their arms to the Romans, and then the Romans had literally decimated the Carthaginians once they were disarmed. Both the um, revolutionary congresses, uh, which were called various things in different places, and also the Continental Congress uh, began urging people who who were gunsmiths to try and fabricate as many weapons as possible and get their hands, you know, urging regular people to get their hands on as much guns and ammo as they could. And also, um, the 
the colonial legislatures and the Continental Congress began urging people in various resolutions, not just to be armed, but to know how to use them, to drill, to practice, to acquire the skills if you didn't already have them, and to uh, brush up your skills if you did have them. These were very practical people who understood that you can have all the weaponry in the world, and if you don't know how to use it effectively, it's not much help. So, for example, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress passed a a resolution in January 17th of 1775 that uh, included the phrase, quote, that it be recommended to all the inhabitants of this colony that they be diligently attentive in learning the use of arms, end quote. Now, down in Virginia, they had a governor, the royal governor of Virginia at the time, a man named Lord Dunmore, who was very much an authoritarian Um, agent of the crown and he had suspended the house of burgesses so it was actually meeting um, technically illegally as what was known as the second virginia convention in march of 1775 and this is of course when patrick henry made his famous speech that i began last episode with an excerpt from his famous give me liberty or give me death speech and the speech the number one goal he was trying to accomplish with that speech was to urge virginians to arm and prepare to begin organizing and equipping themselves for possible war now, let me read a, um, an excerpt from earlier in the speech than the section I read last time. Quote, I ask, gentlemen, sir, what means this martial array if its purpose be not to force us to submission? Can gentlemen assign any other possible motive for it? Has Great Britain any enemy in this quarter of the world to call for all this accumulation of navies and armies? No, sir, she has none. They are meant for us. They can be meant for no other. They are sent over to bind and rivet upon us those chains which the British ministry have been so long forging, end quote. Patrick Henry was looking at this massive, you know, military machine being put together in and amongst the colonies and is saying, look, what, what else are these people here for? What are they doing? Um, so, you know, maybe we should ask similar questions about our militarized uh, cops of today, Department of Homeland Security, and so on. Just throwing that out there. You know, who are they really there to deal with? Are they really there to deal with some foreign boogeyman who might show up? Or are they really there primarily to deal with the people of the area? Well, anyway, in March of 1774, Patrick Henry's speech was inspiring and persuasive to a lot of Virginian leaders. And the convention passed a bunch of Patrick Henry's resolutions to begin arming themselves. Uh, and they even set up a committee to begin to plan for possible war and to, you know, urge localities in, in Virginia it was primarily done at the county level uh, to create militia outfits. So a quote from uh, the article by David Koppel that I'll link to in the show notes from the Charleston Law Review. Quote, the convention formed a committee, including Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson, quote, and now he's quoting the, um, you know, the, the convention itself, quote, to prepare a plan for the embodying, arming, and disciplining of such a number of men as may be sufficient, unquote, to defend the commonwealth. The convention urged, quote, that every man be provided with a good rifle, that every horseman be provided with pistols and holsters, a carbine or other firelock. When the Virginia militiamen assembled a few weeks later, many wore canvas hunting shirts adorned with the motto, liberty or death, end quote. 
pretty badass stuff as far as I'm concerned. Now, down in South Carolina, a um, renegade government known as the General Committee, established by rebellious-minded colonists, passed a resolution that included the following, quote, By the late prohibition of exporting arms and ammunition from England, it too clearly appears a design of disarming the people of America in order the more speedily to dragoon and enslave them. It was therefore recommended to all persons to provide themselves immediately with at least twelve and a half rounds of powder and a proportionate quantity of bullets, end quote. Now, the Continental Congress had not told the colonies what specifically to do regarding organizing militia outfits. And since at the time, local militia outfits, usually organized by town in the north and by county in the south, were under the chain of command of royal governors who were themselves under the thumb of London. These were not seen as legitimate uh, defense forces by resistance-minded American colonists. So when colonies and localities began setting up independent militia, they were acting on their own initiative. So this was a very decentralized activity. Town by town, county by county, often operating in a quite democratic fashion, these militia outfits were organized, officers commissioned, and so on. They were preparing. One example was in Virginia, a guy who later becomes fairly famous as an anti-federalist founding father, George Mason, was involved in setting up the militia in his own county, which was Fairfax County. He was involved in writing something in early 1775 entitled Fairfax County Militia Plan for Embodying the People, which said that the free men of the colony would be ready to defend their ancient liberties. Quote from George Mason's Fairfax County Militia Plan. And we do each of us for ourselves respectively promise and engage to keep a good firelock in proper order and to furnish ourselves as soon as possible with and always keep by us one pound of gunpowder, four pounds of lead, one dozen gun flints and a pair of bullet molds with the cartouche box or powder horn and bag for balls, end quote. In addition to Massachusetts and Virginia, independent militia also began to be uh, set up prior to Lexington and Concord in Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Maryland, and South Carolina. David Koppel writes, quote, They chose their own officers and rejected the authority of officers who had been appointed by the royal governors, end quote. This is already quite a revolutionary thing. A shot hasn't really been fired yet, and yet people were starting to just not go along with royal authority anymore. And it wasn't just in terms of their militia outfits suddenly organizing outside the royal chain of command, but even things like uh, law courts and dispute resolutions, that sort of thing. Uh, The royal commission, royal appointed judges were oftentimes just flat out ignored. Now, in early 1775, while many, many colonists were preparing for possible fighting to defend their rights as they perceived them, plenty of colonists still remained loyal to the British government, some devoutly so. And there are many examples of this you can find, um, sometimes scattered in, in towns amongst lots of rebels and sometimes congregating together in towns where, like, the majority were loyalist. One example of a loyalist hotbed, for whatever reason, was the town of Marshfield, Massachusetts, which, for example, after the Boston Tea Party, had passed a resolution denouncing it. And in January 1775, voters in Marshfield actually voted against 
going along with Congress's trade agreements, you know, the non-importation and boycotts and all that. And in fact, they pledged to do whatever they could to enforce, quote, obedience to the rightful authority of our most gracious sovereign, King George III, and of his laws, end quote. They even began to form a local militia unit, which they called the Associated Loyalists of Marshfield. And there were other towns scattered around the various colonies where you can find a preponderance of loyalists. So it's important to understand that while we'll never know the exact breakdown, and it probably varied from month to month and year to year, of who's for the revolution, who's against it, and who's like kind of on the fence, uh, the fact of the matter is that there was a substantial minority of people who right on through the whole thing thought the British government is our rightful government. It may not be perfect. It may, you know, occasionally do things that we don't like, whatever, but it's still the best there is. And it's still our government. And these people who want to, you know, break away from it and whatever, they're crazy. They're crazy. They're going to end up like William Wallace or something, right? But towns like Marshfield were definitely an exception, especially in Massachusetts, where there seems to be a lot of evidence that a, a very high percentage of the people were on board with the rebels. And definitely the insurgents in Massachusetts were far more effective at forming militias than were the loyalists. And they began to train following the guidelines of Colonel Timothy Pickering's Easy Plan of Discipline for a Militia, which was published in early 1775. Murray Rothbard writes this of Pickering's Easy Plan, quote, Pickering imaginatively simplified the stodgy and ritualistic rules of British army drill and emphasized the American woodsman's habit of individual marksmanship, a practice particularly suited to an armed people's guerrilla war. Political philosophy and military tactics blended as one, for Pickering stressed that the American soldier was an individualist, a free man, and a property owner, in contrast to professional European soldiers trained as obedient machines. Pickering wrote that, quote, men must see the reason and the use of any action or movement. Tis the boast of European commanders that their men are mere machines. God forbid that my countrymen should be thus degraded, end quote. So Pickering simplified a lot of the commands and so on of typical British military practice um, and tried to streamline things and make them much more suitable to the conditions and the experience of the Americans and of the tactics that would be likely to help them in battle. And it certainly is not the only factor, but it probably played somewhat of a role of what ends up happening on April 19, 1775. Pickering's easy plan of discipline for a militia also became the main handbook for the Continental Army once it gets organized until about four years later in the war when it ends up getting replaced by Baron von Steuben's Regulations for the Order and Discipline of the Troops of the United States, which itself, I think, was still the main handbook of the American army until, like, the War of 1812, if not a bit further. And I have not really studied Steuben's manual, but I would bet you, based on what I know of Steuben and um, what he did to the Continental Army, that in many ways it probably steered American military doctrine more in the direction of conventional European or British-style uh, tactics and methods and so on. 
So in the early spring of 1775, this is what's happening. You know, Boston is still under blockade. It's still occupied by a few thousand redcoats. Many colonists throughout the 13 colonies are participating in economic warfare against the British already. And the British throughout various parts of the colonies, but especially in Massachusetts, are looking to disarm the colonists who themselves are busy trying to arm themselves as much as possible and to organize into local defense units. So that sets us up for the outbreak of fighting in April 1775 in Massachusetts. So let's talk about the events of April 19, 1775, a date whose 240th anniversary we just celebrated about a week ago as I'm recording this. And what happened in Massachusetts that day, particularly in and around the towns of Lexington and Concord? Now, British Brigadier Lord Percy who was Gage's second-in-command in Massachusetts at the time, based on the document I quoted from him last episode, seems to have at least had an inkling of the potential for resistance due to the colonists being so well-armed. Gage, while he wanted to disarm them, General Thomas Gage, seems to have not realized the colonists' capacity and willingness to resist with the arms that they had. And the same is true of Percy as well. While Percy admitted that there could be trouble in America because of how well-armed the people were, also at the same time didn't think very much, apparently, of their military capabilities. So um, Thomas Gage also shared that um, lack of appreciation for how willing and able these American colonists might be to resist. Historian John Shy, in his book A People Numerous and Armed, writes, quote, Gage was a weak link. His understanding of the situation in the colonies was surprisingly feeble. His poor understanding of the problem was responsible for the government's resting its policy on a false premise, that the main obstacle to the use of military force in America was legal, not practical, that Britain could actually coerce the colonists whenever it decided to pass the necessary laws. The ministers managed to slight the fact that Americans, unlike Englishmen or Irishmen or Scots, were armed, end quote. Now, our story begins in Boston, which uh, is almost an island. If you look at it, the, the city limits of Boston as they existed in 1775 were on this uh, peninsula that's almost an island connected to the mainland by a very narrow strip of land called Boston Neck. And I'll try to remember to put in the show notes a link to a map of this. So if you're really interested, you can kind of follow along. Um, there's a somewhere online, I believe there's a national parks map of what's called Battle Road, the road from Boston out to Concord. Boston, remember, was a town in early, early 1775 under military occupation and naval blockade in response to the Boston Tea Party. And about 3,000 British redcoats, uh, a mixture of British Army and British Royal Marines, occupy a city of little over 15,000 people. Now, General Thomas Gage, who, remember, was simultaneously the governor of the, the colony of Massachusetts, which had been the most troublesome in recent years, um, he was planning to send troops across the bay to march inland and seize colonial stores of powder and ball that he had uh, intelligence were being stored at the town of Concord, which is, I think, about 16 miles or so 
away from uh, Boston, about a 16-mile march, something like that, a little under 20 miles. Now, by going across the water rather than out through the neck, the land right out of Boston, General Gage hoped that he would be able to maintain the element of surprise and that his troops would be able to get to Concord and confiscate the powder and other equipment they believe was there before the colonists could get wind of it and mobilize and, and move the stuff or whatever. Even though he tried to be very secretive, somehow insurgent networks got wind of Gage's plan. Some sources, including even Paul Revere's ride by David Hackett Fisher, say the leak of information might have been Gage's wife, Margaret Kemble Gage. And, you know, they cite some evidence that it's all circumstantial, but um, there have been many other sources as well. Now, my main sources for this narrative of Lexington and Concord are Paul Revere's ride and also American Spring by Walter Borneman. Paul Revere's ride is by the very respected historian David Hackett Fisher, who's you know one of the top living experts on colonial and revolutionary America. His book Albion Seed has long been considered essential to understanding the cultures of the different colonies in British North America. And he's also written Paul Revere's Ride, Washington's Crossing, a number of other books that have been you know very good sellers for books written by an academic historian. American Spring by Borneman is a more recent book. Borneman, I don't think, is, a, is an academic historian, but nonetheless, the, the book is solidly researched and well-written. And so what I've kind of done is combined the narratives of Lexington and Concord from those two books, um, and then, of course, supplemented with things from other sources as well to come up with my version here. And um, long story short, as far as I'm concerned, in American Spring, which is the more recent book, uh, the author Borneman does a great job largely, I think, disproving the likelihood that Gage's wife was the leak. And that, you know, furthermore, there's lots of potential leakers. You can't, in a, in, if you have thousands of soldiers quartered in a town of 15,000 people, you can't start mobilizing them for some mission without somebody somewhere getting wind of it. And it doesn't require anything as dramatic and soap opera-ish soap opera as Gage's wife being the leak. In fact, all the way back in the 1970s, Murray Rothbard, author of Conceived in Liberty, who didn't weigh in specifically on the question of whether it was Gage's wife or not, nonetheless had a sense that there was probably lots of leaks uh, of information to the insurgents network in Boston. So all the way back, writing in the 70s, Rothbard wrote that Gage, quote, encountered what would prove a major difficulty in fighting a counterinsurgency war by a minority ruling army against insurgent forces backed by the vast majority of the people. He found that, surrounded by a sullen and hostile people, he could not keep any of his troop or fleet movements hidden. End quote. So the mission is march out to Concord, confiscate this stuff, hopefully with enough speed and stealth and surprise that it would not be moved before they got there. Now, the Colonial Insurgent Network also believed that these Redcoats had orders to arrest John Hancock and Samuel Adams, who were hiding outside of Boston. The reality was Gage had issued no such orders, but the point is that the American uh, insurgents believed that he had. Now, whatever the original source of the information on what the British were up to, um, once it starts spreading through the network, it spreads very effectively. There had already been uh, multiple cases of alarms being spread in recent months. We've mentioned some of them already. And of course, one of the parts of this network is the Boston silversmith Paul Revere, who was an interesting guy. And 
Paul Revere's ride by Fisher does a good job talking about like who he was and his background and his social connections. And one of the reasons Paul Revere was so important within the Boston Insurgent Network was that he was a guy with kind of one foot in, in two different realms. He sort of had connections with some of the more elite gentlemanly types in Boston, and yet at the same time could rub elbows very comfortably with the more kind of working class guys. So um, that's what made him, that combined with his willingness and ability to quickly ride out spreading alarms when necessary, uh, made him a pretty important linchpin, though not absolutely essential. It's important to, to recognize that Revere didn't work alone and that there were plenty of other people, including other writers, who participated in this insurgent intelligence uh, network. In fact, Paul Revere didn't even make it all the way to Concord. He, he failed in that mission, as we'll see. The main reason Paul Revere gets so famous and so many other people who were just as important to this whole thing uh, do not Honestly, it's because many years later, the poet Longfellow, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, wrote the famous poem, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. So the fact that that was the star of this uh, famous poem and the fact that Revere rhymes with a lot of stuff, so it's, it's a good name to, to use as your, your hero in a poem, is honestly the main reason why Revere is so much more famous than other people who were involved in this. But Revere was part of a well-organized and experienced network of writers and other signals. You know, people would ring church bells or like signal lights and so on that would quickly transmit information through the countryside. And it's incredible that given 18th century technology and nothing resembling social media or smartphones or anything like that, not even basic telephones, within a matter of just a few hours, thousands of armed Americans were mobilizing from all around Massachusetts and ultimately even other parts of New England and marching towards where the trouble was to do their part to defend liberty. And again, almost none of them are under any orders from anyone other than their own conscience and perhaps at most some of some of their town leaders or their little local town militia captain. So anyway, around the end of of uh, April 18th, Revere sets off to help spread the alarm. He was not the only alarm writer to leave Boston that night. At least two others did. One was a tanner named William Dawes, who managed to make it out of Boston via the land route through Boston Neck. And then there was a third writer, supposedly, according to many sources. But his name and, and what became of him and his route and so on uh, seemed to have just been lost to the sands of time. Around midnight, little after midnight thereabouts, um, b very beginning of April 19th, 1775, Paul Revere is rowed in a tiny rowboat out of Boston across the bay towards Charlestown, uh, literally right under the guns of the British warship, the HMS Somerset, that was parked out there to enforce the coercive acts uh, and blockade the port of Boston. And it was just a, a matter of luck and the angle of the moonlight and what have you that the crew of the Somerset didn't see Paul Revere's little rowboat. Supposedly, Revere could even hear some sailors chatting up on the warship. And of course, had they seen Revere, you know, one cannonball and, and he's done for. Once he reaches Charlestown, Paul Revere hops on a borrowed horse that's been prepared for him, a mare named Brown Beauty, who was supposedly one of like the fastest, sportiest horses in the whole area. And he sets off down the road westward towards Concord. Now, 
a little bit after Revere sets off, 700 British Redcoats, a combination of British Army and Royal Marines, under the command of a lieutenant colonel named Francis Smith, set off across Back Bay in 20 small Navy longboats that barely hold all of these all of these soldiers. And they're headed to a spot called Lechmere Point on the mainland, which they'd chosen as their as their disembarkation spot because it was uninhabited. And when they get to Lechmere Point and start disembarking from these longboats, they quickly sink into waist-deep, freezing-cold muck and mud. The reason Lechmere Point was uninhabited was because it was a nasty swamp. And then these soldiers and Royal Marines had to stand there waiting, shivering, it's almost freezing cold, for their provisions to arrive, which were to be provided courtesy of the Royal Navy. But, of course, the Royal Navy didn't like the British Army very much, so when they were told to provide provisions, they found their oldest, nastiest expired junk and sent that. And so when the provisions finally arrive at Lechmere Point and the, and the troops begin to open them, they discover that these are rotten, uh, some of it's even maggot-infested, uh, absolutely unedible. So imagine the effect this has on the morale of all these troops. They're heading off. It's the wee a.m. hours. It's almost freezing cold. It's April in New England. Um, they've, they've jumped out of the boats into like you know knee-deep freezing mud and then they've had to wait and wait and then their provisions finally get there and they basically find out oh you don't get food today and overall gage had um had these troops go out very lightly uh provisioned with with minimal you know water and ammunition and so on because the goal was speed and surprise they weren't expecting there to be any serious fighting now, as that's happening, as the Redcoats are standing around in, in the mud of Lechmere Point, um, Revere's making it to the town of Lexington, which is a small town, um, maybe a little bit past halfway to Concord, where he goes to the home of a man named Reverend Jonas Clark, where he knows that John Hancock and Samuel Adams are staying. Now, there's a local militia guy who's guarding the house, and he tells Revere to quiet down before he wakes up everyone, and Revere yells at him that, hey, there's going to be plenty of noise because... The regulars, right, the Redcoats, are coming. At that point, Samuel Adams woke up, opened a window. He knew Paul Revere. He recognized him. And Adams and Hancock immediately began arguing what to do. Uh, John Hancock, who was always kind of a hothead and had delusions of, of being a great military hero, even though he had, like, no training or experience to qualify him for this, uh, he wanted to, like, go out there and fight the Redcoats, apparently. And Samuel Adams, who normally has a reputation for being kind of a hothead himself, but, but had no delusions that he was a super soldier, Samuel Adams had to, like, argue him out of basically going out there and, and charging the Redcoats. But the two of them, they argued and screwed around so much that they almost get caught by the Redcoats, despite Revere warning them ahead of time. Now, while Revere's in Lexington, William Dawes, that other alarm rider, the tanner who rode out through Boston Neck, he arrives and uh, he, along with Revere, you know, together continue on toward Concord. And along the way, they bump into a young man named Dr. Samuel Prescott, who was out riding around because apparently he had been courting his fiancée. And they knew Dr. Prescott. They knew he was an insurgent sympathizer. And like most doctors back then, you know, doctors didn't really have offices back in those days. Everything they did was house calls. So doctors typically had some of the best, fastest horses around. And they also would have known all the roads and shortcuts and everything better than almost anybody. And so they're happy to recruit Dr. Prescott to also help them spread the alarm. 
So the three of them ride along again towards Concord together when they happen to ride right into a small patrol of British soldiers that General Gage had sent out ahead of the main force to uh, patrol the streets, specifically to look for people like Paul Revere and company. Now there's a melee, sort of a fracas, uh, when, when the troops bump into Revere and company and Dr. Prescott manages to get away. He does some evasive maneuvers, jumps his horse over a stone wall and makes it to Concord. He's the only one who made it all the way to Concord that day. And it's because of him that they were able to move most of the military stores that were in Concord and hide them before the Redcoats arrived. William Dawes manages to escape, but he's thrown from his horse in the process. So as far as being able to, you know, spread the word all the way to Concord, he's out of action. Paul Revere is captured and grabbed. Guns are pointed at him. And then an officer steps in and politely asks him who he is. And Paul Revere tells them the truth about who he is and what he's doing. And it's quickly clear that he knows more about what the British troops are up to than these soldiers themselves do. Now, after telling them all these true things, Revere then slips in a lie. He says there's 500 armed militiamen waiting for them just around the corner in Lexington, so they better look out. At first, the officer in charge of this patrol doubts this, but then, as if on cue, a large musket volley sounds from the direction of Lexington. These British soldiers, there's, I think, uh, less than a dozen of them in this little patrol, they are very, very unnerved by this, and they decide to get the hell out of the area. They release Paul Revere, but they they take Brown Beauty with them. So Paul Revere is now on foot, and he will not make it all the way to Concord. Now, back down the road in the town of Lexington, what had happened uh, was this. When Revere rode through and started spreading the alarm, uh, the the men of Lexington, what was called the Lexington Training Band, uh, the the militia company for the town, which was not a very big town, um, they had started to, to gather and um, trying to figure out what to do. There's a lot of confusion and rumor. People aren't sure what's really happening. And of course, there had been false alarms before. We've we've mentioned one of them. So in order to get a better picture of what's going on and, and thus be able to make a better decision about what they should do, the Lexingtonians had sent out two riders of their own to sort of scout out and verify that the alarm uh, was genuine and not a false one. And one of their riders returned after three hours claiming that it was false. He had seen no redcoats out and about. Based on this, the captain in charge of the Lexington training band, a man named John Parker, dismisses his men, but tells them to stay within sound of the muster drum so that if something does happen, they can quickly remobilize. Now, it was very cold and dark, and the men who lived right nearby uh, Lexington Green, where they were mustering, um, you know, they can go home, but a lot of the guys lived some distance away from Lexington Green. So they're, you know, they got to stay within sound of the mustard drum. Well, luckily they look over and in a tavern called, I think, Buckman Tavern, uh, they notice there's a fire on. And so they decide, hey, time to go in. And, um, you know, that's within earshot of the mustard drum. Let's go have us a pint. Now, before entering, they had to unload their muskets. And the only way to unload an 18th century musket is to discharge it, to fire it. So what happened was, as the men were walking into this tavern, they had discharged their muskets up into the air. And this was the volley that the British troops had heard while they were interrogating Revere, and which scared them into letting him go. Not long after... 
Captain Parker had dismissed his men, the second rider that Lexington had sent out came back, and he's all in a huff, shouting that not only are the regulars out, they're just down the road close to town. And at that point, Captain Parker ordered his drummer to sound the muster. And the men began to pile out of, you know, the tavern or their homes that they live nearby uh, to see what's going on. Now, Captain Parker is described by sources as a tall, gaunt man. He's in his mid-40s, and he's one of the few men in his town who was a combat veteran. He had actually seen combat in the French and Indian Wars. His men had elected him, as was the practice in New England militia. Each town that had a militia company, which was most of the towns with more than like five people, would elect their own captain. So these were very democratic military outfits. And they picked Parker presumably because he had some real-world combat experience, which most of these guys did not have. But John Parker is a very ill man this morning. He's got the disease that today we know as tuberculosis. And in fact, this disease will actually kill him within six months of this incident. But despite the fact that he was very sick, he didn't stay home that day. Instead, he was out leading where real leaders lead, which is from the front. He was out there in the freezing cold and darkness with his townsmen, with his friends, his kin. Now, the men of Parker's company, about 70 of them, are all neighbors, and in fact, many of them are related to each other. They've been training for months, um, ever since things really started to get heated with the British, especially since the coercive acts. Um, many of these militia units in the area, not just Lexington, had started really increasing how often they were practicing and so on. They form up on Lexington Green right next to the road, but then he says... Let the troops pass by. Don't molest them without they being first. Now, as the regulars um, begin to come into view, it's very intimidating. They're, you know, outnumber drastically the militia of Lexington. And a lot of these um, Lexington militiamen are young. Majority of them have never seen battle before. And understandably, they begin to be frightened. Some of them start to say things like, this is stupid. We we shouldn't stand here, you know, in these conditions so horribly outnumbered. And supposedly Captain Parker replied with the following, quote, The first man who offers to run will be shot down. Stand your ground. Do not fire unless fired upon. But if they want a war, then let it begin here. Now, as the regulars approach town, there's a fork in the road. And the road that goes directly to Concord actually doesn't go right past Lexington Green. And at first, it looks like the entire formation of Redcoats is just not even going to come uh, directly next to these uh, militiamen at all. And then a young, aggressive lieutenant towards the front of the line named Jesse Adair decides to take some of the British troops and take them down the fork in the road that leads right up to Lexington Green. Royal Marine Major John Pitcairn, who was further back, sees what's happening, sees the confrontation coming, and rides out to the front on his horse, um, he, Lieutenant Adair, leads his detachment right up to within musket range of the Lexington men, which is, you know, 50 yards or so, and orders his men to form up in line of battle. Major Pitcairn then rides up, pistol in hand, and starts shouting things like, Disperse your rebels, lay down your arms and disperse. Captain Parker decides that the prudent thing to do is to disperse, and he orders his men to do so, but he does not tell them to lay down their arms. 
Now, you got to think about this. This is a chaotic situation. It's like, you know, three, four in the morning, something like that. It's pre-dawn and you've got hundreds of redcoats marching around, clanking around, yelling their huzzah battle cry. And then you've got Major Pitcairn and, and some of the other officers riding around their horses, yelling orders and things. And in all this noise and racket, you've got Captain Parker, who's racked with tuberculosis, telling his men what to do. Now, how many of them can even hear what the hell he's saying, right? And so some of the Lexington militiamen who heard Parker um, turn and start to walk off Lexington Green and others are just sort of standing there, uh, presumably because they didn't hear his orders. They weren't sure what the hell was going on. Now, it's in this confused, weird situation that a shot rings out. This is the famous shot heard around the world, right? Immortalized in, I think it's, uh, what is it? Ralph Waldo Emerson's poem. Several witnesses claimed it sounded like a pistol shot. Um, some sources think that there were actually multiple shots fired more or less simultaneously. Um, I've, I've seen some sources that say that someone just had like a flash in the pan of primer powder. It wasn't even a full full on shot. And, you know, exactly who fired it and why we don't know it could if it was in fact a pistol shot then odds are it was a british officer because they probably were the only people on the field who would have even had pistols it might have even been major pitcairn himself i think when he was riding out and yelling at the men to disperse on lexington green he's waving his pistol over his head on horseback and whatever not not too far-fetched to think that he might have accidentally pulled the trigger on it but regardless of who fired first or why, or if it was even just what the military today euphemistically calls a negligent discharge, which always makes me think of what someone would say who you know needs to buy Depends, uh, when the shot rings out, the British troops begin to fire without orders. At first, just isolated shots and then a, a big volley. No one is hit by the first volley, but the British quickly reload and fire another, even though no one's ordered them to fire. And in fact, many of the officers were trying to get them to stop. The second volley is a bit more accurate and Lexington men begin to fall. Many of them shot in the back as they were already turning to walk home. Others who are not hit begin to run. A few of the older veterans who were there stood their ground, including a relative of John Parker, a man named Jonas Parker, who was killed. Very few Lexington men managed to return fire at all. And after a couple of volleys, the British then close in with bayonets. These, by the way, are 18-inch long bayonets, triangular in cross-section, so that they would make a wound that would probably not heal properly. There was a man named Jonathan Harrington who was fatally wounded by a British musket ball who nonetheless managed to crawl back to his home to see his family, where he died on his own doorstep in view of his wife and children. The Redcoats, their blood up, they've lost all sense of discipline, and they're running after fleeing Minutemen, firing at will. Some of them even start looting things from the town. It's just frickin' chaos. And in this situation, Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith, who had been further back in the formation, finally arrives on the scene. And Francis Smith is one of these guys who, you know, his his military skill is questioned often, but no one questions that he's like one of these very much by the book sort of discipline type officers. And he's absolutely aghast at the chaos and the carnage. And he does the only thing he can think of, probably the smart thing to do in the situation. He orders his drummer to beat the call to arms. 
And it takes a few minutes, but the regulars have been drilled endlessly in responding to the different drum calls and things. And so they begin to, you know, stop whatever they're doing and form up into formation again. Now, when the clouds of musket smoke uh, blow away on Lexington Green, there are eight Lexingtonians lying dead or dying and another nine who are wounded. There were eight sets of fathers and sons in Captain Parker's company. Five of them are separated by death. The Redcoats have suffered only one casualty, a private who took a minor wound in the thigh. Having restored order to his men, Colonel Smith tells his subordinate officers for the first time that day what exactly they're up to. And when they realize that they now have to continue on to Concord with no element of surprise whatsoever, several officers actually protested, which is a rare and gutsy thing to do in the British Army and is in fact kind of a dangerous thing to do. But Colonel Smith is determined to carry out his orders. Before the men continue on down the road toward Concord, though, he allows his soldiers to fire a victory volley and to give three huzzas as the people of Lexington are counting their dead on the blood-soaked ground. By the way, um, we believe that a big part of why he told his men to fire a victory volley was not to celebrate, you know, shooting a bunch of guys who mostly hadn't hadn't been fighting back, but more than anything else to get them to unload their muskets to avoid any safety issues from this point on, given how much their blood was up. But still, imagine how this felt to the people of Lexington. The British troops are celebrating, they're gloating in their great victory while you're busy figuring out which ones of your friends, relatives, and neighbors have been killed or maimed. Well, Colonel Smith orders his men to proceed on down the road toward Concord, where more armed men are gathering. Dr. Prescott had already reached it, again, the only rider to make it all the way there, um, and he had also alerted the nearby town of Acton as well. And so men are mobilizing not just from Concord itself, but from many of the other surrounding towns. Now, as the British begin to approach Concord, the militia there is not aware of what had happened in Lexington yet, and they're arguing amongst themselves over what to do. There were some younger hothead types who wanted to march out and intercept the Redcoats immediately outside of town, and then there were some older, more experienced militiamen who wanted to wait in town for the Redcoats. Then there were the town elders who wanted to um, pull out of town entirely uh, across a bridge called the North Bridge and wait on Punkatasset Hill for more um, reinforcements to arrive before they committed to any further plan. Well, since they couldn't agree on what to do, they did all three. The younger guys marched um, east out of town to go intercept the Redcoats. The somewhat older militia guys stayed in town and the town elders began to pull out to uh, Punkatasset Hill outside town. Now, as the younger men march out and they see this massive British force approaching, they um, decide maybe these old guys were onto something in not wanting to just go confront these guys. And um, they march back into town with the British troops actually not far behind them. Witnesses later said, if you didn't know better, you might think they were part of the same parade. As the younger militiamen pass back through Concord, they're joined by the older men, and then all of them together pull out of town across the North Bridge to Punkatasset Hill. And there, other militia from some of the other surrounding towns begin to arrive, and soon there are over 500 of them. Now, when Colonel Smith's men make it into town, he finds um, no militia actually in the town, so they post some light infantry at the North Bridge and send the Grenadiers, who were like the big burly shock troops of the British Army, to search the town. They find relatively little, 
uh, Major Pitcairn of the Royal Marines has a tip that um, the town innkeeper may have hidden some cannon. And so Pitcairn takes a few soldiers with him and goes to the town inn, breaks down the door, and at gunpoint gets the innkeeper to tell him where some cannon have been buried outside, uh, out back of the inn. And British troops dig up the cannon and disable them by knocking off the trunnions, the pieces that stick out on the sides of the cannon, basically turning it into useless metal tube. British troops ransack much of the town, but find little else of real military value. They take the few items they found with any military value at all and pile them up in the middle of town and light it on fire. Now, the militiamen who are uh, hundreds of yards away up on Punkatasset Hill watching this get very indignant because up from, from that vantage point, they can't quite see the detail of what's going on. Some of them start to say things like, are we just going to stand around here and let them burn our town down? Ironically, at the very time that this was happening, the British troops were actually starting to um, try to help put out the fire because it was getting out of control. And apparently some old woman in Concord was nagging the Redcoats so effectively um, that they actually started to try to fight the fire. Now, as these militiamen watched the smoke in Concord, Captain... Isaac Davis, the head of the Acton Militia Company, was asked if he and his men would lead the way across the North Bridge toward town. Remember, the North Bridge was guarded by uh, some redcoats that, that Smith had sent there to secure the area. Isaac Davis's response was, I have not a man who is afraid to go. They loaded their muskets, but were told not to fire unless fired upon. Isaac Davis was a 30-year-old farmer and also part-time gunsmith who always made sure that his militia unit had all the best equipment and training. They trained twice weekly in marksmanship behind his shop. His men were among the few who all had bayonets fitted for their muskets. And this was why he and his, his outfit was asked to lead the way towards the North Bridge, because they were the best uh, equipped for sure, and probably best trained out of all these little uh, town militia companies. Now, Isaac Davis had four children, all of whom were sick at that time. And yet, look where he is. He's out there with his, with his townsmen, with his kinsmen, leading, again, where real leaders lead, which is from the front. His wife, Hannah, said that when he was grabbing up his kit and heading out the door to muster that morning, he had turned to her on the way out and said simply, take good care of the children. And she said when she heard that, she had a premonition that he would not be returning alive. As Isaac Davis's troops begin to approach the Redcoats at the North Bridge of Concord, the Redcoats begin pulling up the planks of the bridge, trying to disable it. And some of the militiamen from the town of Concord, who had built this bridge, got very angry with it. The Redcoats retreated back across the bridge and started to form up into formation. The militiamen continued to move towards them. The British began to fire some warning shots. And when the militia continued to approach, the British began to fire at them for real. Most of the British shots went high, but a few did strike people. And Isaac Davis was one of the first to be hit. He took a musket ball in the chest and went down. Uh, we believe he's probably shot in the heart because witnesses said he was spraying blood um, profusely. He was the first American killed at the North Bridge of Concord and the first American officer to be killed in the entire Revolutionary War. Now, as Isaac Davis and a few others went down, a militia major yelled the order, fire, fellow soldiers, for God's sake, fire, fire as fast as you can. This was the first time 
that Americans had been ordered to fire on British soldiers. And it turns out they know how to shoot because within just two minutes, those highly trained and disciplined British regulars broke and ran. Now, the Americans had been ordered not to fire unless fired upon, so once the British broke, the Americans stopped shooting. Instead, they took up positions behind a stone wall, anticipating a counterattack. Now, some very interesting things are revealed by the North Bridge shootout. The casualty rate among British soldiers who were at the North Bridge was about 7%. The casualty rate, though, among British officers who were at the North Bridge was about 44%. What this shows is that Once Americans decided to fire, they fired accurately and deliberately. They were targeting leaders. They had been told to do this. If it came to shooting, go for the leaders. They understood that the hierarchical top-down British army would be severely handicapped if you took out its leadership. The lower ranks of men were only trained to obey orders, not to take the initiative and think for themselves if their leader was taken out. And so the fact that the British officers had much flashier and more flamboyant uniforms made them easy targets. The American militiamen were also trained uh, differently when it came to marksmanship. They were trained in individual marksmanship, taking careful aim at one enemy troop and taking them out. This in part was due to the fact that most of their experience shooting was uh, from the hunting field where, you know, you carefully shoot a deer. Whereas the British Army didn't really train that way. They trained for area fire. They trained uh, to basically act as like a giant shotgun, shooting a dense enough cloud of musket balls in the direction of the enemy that, you know, you'd hit them. That, that's what European drill warfare was all about. The two armies line up each other uh, against each other in dense formation at relatively close range and just area fire at each other until one side breaks. And in the cultivated fields of Europe, that was definitely the best way to fight. But in the more uh, frontier and rugged wilderness environments of North America at the time, that may not always be the best way to fight. Now, in the aftermath of the shootout at the North Bridge of Concord, there was a young man named Ami White uh, in town who was not serving with the militia unit because he had apparently been declared mentally unfit. He was, you know not right in the head. And uh, Ami White comes across a wounded British soldier and used a hatchet to hack off the top of the man's head, exposing his brains and killing him. Really, really nasty stuff. Now, when British troops discover this mutilated body, they're understandably horrified at it. But of course, they think it was just an American militiaman who did it. They didn't, they didn't know it was the town nut who did it. And as the story works its way through the ranks of the Redcoats, it gets magnified and magnified until it gets, you know, multiple guys getting horribly mutilated and all this sort of thing. And as far as the British are concerned, you know, the gloves are off at this point. The, the Americans were fighting ungentlemanly by deliberately taking aim at the officers. And um, now they're told they're mutilating corpses. Now, Colonel Smith, when he saw the American strong positions behind the stone wall near the North Bridge, um, hesitated, wasn't sure what to do, actually hesitated, I think, for a couple of hours. And then around noon, he formed up his troops to head back to Boston, which, again, is like 16, 18 miles march, something like that. As they head out of Concord, British troops can see swarms of American militia in the hills um, some distance away from the road, well out of musket range. And by this point in the day, uh, Americans probably outnumbered British troops in the field. 
But for a while, there's no shooting, there's no fighting. The militia are just sort of shadowing the British troops from a distance. Because remember, the standing order to the American militia was, do not fire unless fired upon. Well, they're not, you know, being shot at it anymore, so they're just sort of following the British from a, from a safe distance. But when the Redcoats approach a curve in the road called Merriam's Corner, a little ways east of Concord, um, things change. A shot rings out from somewhere in the distance, possibly a colonist taking a, a Hail Mary shot, you know, ignoring the orders of don't fire unless fired upon. But whoever it was, some of the British soldiers fire a volley in return, and this ends up being a huge mistake. At that point, the colonial militia begin opening fire freely, and again, their fire is more effective. Due to the advantages of ground, they're up in the hills, and also superior individual marksmanship. And lead begins to rain down on the redcoats. And it's now clear that the British troops are going to have to try to carry out the most difficult maneuver for any military force throughout all of history to execute successfully, and that is a fighting retreat. The Redcoats would set out with minimal provisions, expecting a short, quick surgical strike with minimal resistance, now have to carry out a fighting retreat, and again, running short on food, water, ammunition, all this stuff. And every time they come to, you know, a curve in the road or, or anything like that, uh, they, they seem to come across another nasty ambush. They take more casualties at a place called Brooks Hills and another place that gets known as Bloody Angle. It's now early afternoon as the Redcoats begin to come back uh, in, the, in the vicinity of Lexington on their retreat. And there, Captain Parker's militia company have regrouped, and they've headed out outside of town and taken up good positions behind a bunch of granite boulders near the road, setting an ambush. The men wait until the Redcoats are very close, and when Colonel Smith himself is riding right out front, and they're within can't-miss musket range, Captain Parker orders his men to fire, and they get in two devastating volleys before the British can counterattack. More redcoats fall, again, disproportionately uh, the officers. Colonel Smith himself was wounded in the thigh. Major Pitcairn uh, lost his horse, but is himself unscathed. However, a few months later at a battle called Bunker Hill, he'll be shot in the head. When the British counterattack, Parker's men disperse, satisfied that they have, in fact, gotten vengeance. And to, the, to this day, this spot along Battle Road is known as Parker's Revenge. The British continue to be constantly harassed and attacked as they continue east. They're very low on ammo and water. The column is starting to lose order and discipline. It's in danger of turning from a fighting retreat into a rout. And there's even the possibility that they might end up surrounded and cut off and have no choice but to surrender in mass. When the Redcoats reach Lexington, they expect to meet yet more resistance, but are delighted and relieved to, in fact, discover a British Relief Brigade, another about 1,200 or so Redcoats, under the command of Brigadier Lord Hugh Earl Percy. Percy's men, uh, in addition to having you know a bunch more troops, they also have several cannon along with them, which initially proved to be very effective at dispersing colonial militia, most of whom have no experience facing cannon in battle. Gage had sent this brigade out via the land route from Boston to reinforce Smith, but they had been, uh, for a variety of reasons, late to leave, and so were only now meeting up with Smith's group. 
Now, Brigadier Percy had not thought much of the colonists' fighting capabilities prior to this uh, day, and his column had come out with minimal ammo as a result, and he's absolutely shocked to see the state of Smith's men, battered and exhausted, many of them wounded. He quickly realizes that these colonists will not be the pushovers that he thought they'd be. Around the time that Smith's men are meeting up with Percy's brigade, a man named Brigadier General William Heath an American militia general who described himself in his own words as a corpulent, balding gentleman farmer arrives to take command of the American militia in the field. Now, Heath has never personally led soldiers in combat, but he's been an avid student of military tactics and military history for some time. He's read many books on the subject, and he would also often hang out in the taverns, buddying up to British officers, buying them drinks, and picking their brains about various military tactics and maneuvers. By the way, he's one of several significant self-taught military geniuses to come out of this generation in New England, uh, including other names you might recognize like Henry Knox and Nathaniel Green. And Heath was particularly interested in tactics of what was called back then skirmishing, using mobile light infantry and skillful understanding of terrain to effectively attack and harass larger conventional forces. And based on this study, he's developed a tactic that he calls the circle of fire, which he believes will be perfect for this situation that he finds in uh, April 19, 1775, of a big British troop column slowly moving down the road back towards Boston. The idea of the circle of fire is you have a moving line of skirmishers constantly, you know, setting ambushes and then pulling back and going further down the road and setting up another ambush and to have this running like almost in relays over and over and over throughout the day so that the British column will be under constant fire or nearly constant fire as they proceed down the road so that there'll be, you know, just one ambush after another. And every time the British, you know, use their, their cannon and their numbers and, and so on to counterattack, you just pull back, disperse and have your militia guys circle around further down the road and set up another ambush. Now, the British officers who, you know, in weeks and months gone past, uh, Heath had run this past, had said, well, it sounds like a, a good idea, but it would be um, impossible in practice. And the biggest problem would be keeping the men supplied with ammo and things like that. You know, the logistics, that would be the problem. So even disciplined regulars thought this would be a tough thing to pull off in real life, but Heath is going to pull it off with a force composed mostly of inexperienced amateurs. And the key that allows them to solve the logistical problem and keep the fight up all day, hours after hours, as the British troops march back to Boston, is that mothers of these various towns in the area use their children to shuttle food, water, and ammo uh, out to resupply their fathers and brothers and so on. And so throughout the day, many children were, were running from home out to go find, you know, their, their fathers or their neighbors or their uncles in the field and give them ammo and food and water and things and then running back home again. And you might think this sounds, you know, horribly dangerous and, and I'm, I guess it is, but amazingly, not a single one of these children was killed or captured who, who did this throughout the day. I guess a childhood of growing up in the New England countryside means that you're pretty damn good at hide and seek. By the way, this also shows you how, at least in the early stages, this is a people's war. You know, the, the women and children may not be picking up muskets and shooting, but they're still pitching in. They're still 
backing up uh, their men who actually are fighting in the battles in every way possible. They are part, they are participating in a direct sense. So Heath uses the circle of fire and it works well. And it's interesting to look at the way that the, the colonial militia uh, were largely leading themselves. I mean, you had Heath as their overall commander, like doing his best to sort of organize what was happening. But at the same time, a lot of the American militia were operating as individuals or as small groups. And they might have had the overall idea of Heath's circle of fire and and be trying to, you know, do that. But at the same time, like they're making their own calls as to what exactly to do next, where to set up an ambush next and so on. It really was this kind of bottom up self-organized resistance. As the British get closer back towards Boston, they pass through a town that at that time was called Monotomy, which is now called Arlington, Massachusetts. And uh, they reach this around 4.30 p.m., and there they end up with savage house-to-house fighting. Uh, Many of the houses in Monotomy were built right next to the road, have almost no front yard, and there were some colonials taking sniper shots at the Redcoats as they march through this town. And the Redcoats by this point have lost all sense of restraint. And so the standing order becomes, if we take a shot from a house, we storm the house, kill every person inside of it, and then burn the house to the ground. And that's what the Redcoats did to many houses, killing many people, uh, including people who weren't even armed in the town of Monotomy. Savage house-to-house fighting. 40 more Redcoats die in Monotomy, 80 more are wounded. The colonists lose 25 dead, but only 9 wounded, which is the opposite of how almost all battles, ancient or modern, are. Usually you have way more wounded than killed. And the reason for this is that the British were um, killing the wounded in monotomy. That's that's how angry they were at the way things were going. Um, This was the, the bloodiest stretch of the entire day of this mobile battle was through the town of monotomy. And you read sources like Paul Revere's Ride in American Spring, and you can read about some of the individuals who were, you know, killed, some of them just wrong place, wrong time. It happened to be in the wrong building that got stormed by the Redcoats. But they managed to fight their way through monotomy, and Percy's route back to Boston leads through the town of Cambridge, where the Redcoats discover that the colonists have removed the planks of the bridge that goes across the Charles River there. And on the far side is a massive militia force. Plus, the British are still under attack from Heath's circle of fire, and it looks like they are in deep shit. At this point in time, Percy acts quickly and turns his column down an alternate route, a little-known path called Kent Lane, towards Charlestown, which is just across the bay from Boston. But Percy realizes that's as good as home free, because once they're at Charlestown, they're within range of the guns of the warships out there in in Boston Harbor, and therefore they are basically safe at that point. They're under the the umbrella of, you know, the HMS Somerset, and I think there were some other warships out there as well. This probably saved all of the Redcoats from having to surrender, you know, from being completely surrounded and captured. Around 7 p.m., what's left of the Redcoats collapse in exhaustion at a place called Bunker Hill at Charlestown, now under the protection of the guns of the Somerset. And the next day, the British find themselves under siege by thousands of militiamen who have mobilized from all over New England. And the siege of Boston, which will last for many months, has begun. Now, there's some difference in, in the sources as to the exact numbers of casualties and things. Um, here's what I have. 
uh, and I forget which source these are from. It probably Paul Revere's ride, but unfortunately I forgot to annotate it in, in my notes, but Gage, um, sent out approximately a total of 1800 men, uh, into battle that day of which 73 were killed, 174 were wounded and 26 went missing, which adds up to a 15% casualty rate. About 3,500 militiamen participated in the battle to some degree, of which 49 died, 39 were wounded, and 4 went missing, which is only a 2% casualty rate. So you have to understand what just happened. Some of the British military's best soldiers and Marines, when Gage put together this force to send out on this mission, he picked a lot of the best guys from each unit and put them together. They've just been whipped they've had their asses handed to them by a bunch of farmers and shopkeepers very few of whom had combat experience through a combination of courage clever tactics and superior marksmanship they have stunned the british military and in the process have begun to stun the world on april 19th 1775 15 months 15 months before the Declaration of Independence was written, the people of the Massachusetts countryside declared their independence in their actions. Lord Hugh Percy, who prior to April 19, 1775, had been pretty dismissive of the colonists' potential military capabilities, wrote this in his diary after Lexington and Concord, after April 19, quote, during the whole affair, the rebels attacked us in a very scattered, irregular manner, but with perseverance and resolution, nor did they ever dare to form into a regular body. Indeed, they knew too well what was proper to do so. Whoever looks upon them as an irregular mob will find himself very much mistaken. They have men amongst them who know very well what they are about having been employed as rangers against the Indians and Canadians, and this country being very much covered with wood and hilly is very advantageous for their method of fighting, end quote. Now, it's important to point out, too, that occasionally you'll hear somebody say that the colonists had advantages in the Battle of Lexington and Concord because they had rifled muskets that allowed them to achieve greater long-range accuracy. And this is absolutely false in terms of this battle. It's true that later in the war, there are some units of riflemen, as they were called, which means they're armed with rifled muskets. But at the Battle of Lexington and Concord, nobody on either side was armed with a rifled musket. They're both, both sides are using smoothbore muskets, which are typically only accurate in very good hands to like 60, 70 yards. Sometimes the myths of the colonist marksmanship are exaggerated to be fair, but it actually is verifiable, provable by evidence that they tended to be much more accurate than the British or any other European soldiers of the time, even when armed with equivalent equipment. The average New England farm boy shot more growing up than did the average British soldier. In addition, the New England militia had, beginning in the latter part of 1774, started practicing more frequently, twice a week in many towns, and this training often included individual marksmanship practice. Again, like I mentioned before, the British Army, like almost all European armies at the time, stressed the idea of area fire rather than individual marksmanship. In fact, the British didn't even have an order for aim at that time. The orders were load, present, fire. And in fact, the British soldiers were taught to turn away 
when they fired um, in order to save their faces from possibly being burned and maybe even their eyesight damaged by the sparks of the so-called flash in the pan that occurs with these flintlock muskets where you actually have a small amount of gunpowder priming the pan. And so there's a a pretty decent flash uh, that happens right in front of your face as you shoot. But of course, as anybody who knows anything about accurate shooting uh, will tell you, it's vitally important that you follow through in any sort of shooting, as much as it is uh, important to follow through when throwing a punch, casting a fly rod, swinging a golf club, or what have you. Follow through. And in the case of shooting, follow through means keeping your eyes focused on your sight picture as the shot fires uh, until the, the shot is completely you know, fired. And you can't do this if you're turning your head away from the target in order to protect your eyesight from the flash in the pan. So, you know, the the American uh, colonists had experienced more of their shooting in the hunting scenario where you've got to just go ahead and take the risk of the flash in the pan and, um, you know, keep focused on that target or you don't have dinner. And again, like I mentioned already, the militiamen deliberately targeted the officers who were usually very conspicuous. Experts who have crunched the numbers of shots fired versus casualties have found that in early battles such as Lexington and Concord, as well as Bunker Hill, about 2% of American shots inflicted casualties. 2% might sound like a low number, but in fact, modern numbers from recent wars with modern rifles are not much better, and in some cases are actually worse, believe it or not. Um, Look up like how many hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammo have been expended in recent wars, recent meaning, you know, since like Korea, to achieve one enemy casualty. It's astounding. So 2% might not sound low, but it actually stands up pretty well to modern wars, and they're doing this with smoothbore muskets. In most recent wars, American troops expended tens or even hundreds of thousands of rounds for each enemy casualty they inflicted, which means that only a tiny fraction of of a percent of bullets fired by modern armies in modern guns, which again, way more accurate than smoothbore muskets from the 1700s, actually hit the enemy. And if you look at uh, the contemporaries of the American troops, look at the European soldiers of that time period, uh, the late 18th, early 19th century, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about British, French, Prussian, or whoever, they averaged, um, looking at most of the major battles of that time period, they averaged about 0.17% of their shots incurring casualties. So even though 2% of American shots inflicting casualties doesn't sound impressive, the fact is that this means the colonists were about 12 times more accurate of shots than their British or other European contemporaries. And again, I'll just stress one more time that this was a new type of war, a people's war, an insurgency that in many ways presaged much later conflicts even in the 20th and 21st century. As Murray Rothbard puts it in volume four of Conceived in Liberty, quote, here was not a usual war begun by one government against another. Here was a people's war of revolution waged against the existing state apparatus begun without benefit of governmental or even organized direction, end quote. Now, in the aftermath of what became known as the Battle of Lexington and Concord, the leaders in Massachusetts understood the 
huge importance of the narrative to garnering as much support for Massachusetts among the other colonies as possible to make sure they stood with Massachusetts rather than siding with the British government against them, which, of course, would have been uh, delightful to the British government if that happened, and also to get as much public opinion from Britain as well as from uh, maybe anti-government kind of more liberal members of parliament on the side of the colonies as possible to make it clear that these Massachusetts people who had fought on April 19th were the victims, that they were not the aggressors. So when on April 22nd, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress met, Dr. Joseph Warren, who was the only prominent political leader who had personally participated a little bit in the fighting of April 19th, understood the importance of PR and help to steer the Provincial Congress towards really making that a priority. Two committees were quickly appointed. One was called the Committee of Inquiry, and the other was called the Narrative Committee. And it's interesting that these were two separate things. The former, the Committee of Inquiry, was concerned with gathering as much facts about exactly what had happened on April 19th as possible. And the latter committee, the Narrative Committee, was concerned with crafting a self-serving narrative in which... To be brutally honest, the facts were sometimes of secondary importance. After collecting many sworn eyewitness depositions and putting together their narrative of what had happened and who was at fault and so on, the Massachusetts Congress set about spreading their narrative. Dispatch postal riders rode from Boston out to other colonies, and they also sent their version of the narrative of April 19th to Britain via a very light, fast schooner called the Quero that managed to evade all the British patrols around the Massachusetts coast. And even though the Quero probably left Massachusetts about four days after the British military ship that was carrying Gage's official version of what had happened, the Quero still managed to arrive in Britain first by a margin of almost two weeks, making the journey in only about a month, which is uh, much less than was typical to cross the Atlantic back then. This was a very um, fast, fairly small and sleek schooner, and it was carrying minimal cargo, I think, other than the dispatch uh, from the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. I think it just had a little bit of ballast, and that was it. Since the Massachusetts version of April 19 got there uh, before Gage's, by almost two weeks, their version got a lot more publicity and, you know, a lot more press. By the time Gages showed up, theirs had already been out there for about 13 days. And this gave a lot of ammunition to members of parliament who were in opposition to the government over, among other things, its treatment of the American colonies. Even though, by the way, the Massachusetts narrative stretched the truth in a variety of places. Uh, For example, their dispatch to Britain included such over-the-top fabricated atrocities as, quote, women in childbed were driven by the soldiery naked into the streets, end quote, and things along those lines that were, you know, the, the, the British clearly were the aggressors and did some bad things on April 19, but, you know, they're, they're fabricating or grossly exaggerating atrocity stories, which is a longstanding art form when it comes to trying to get support for your side in a conflict, for sure. But what I find interesting is this is almost like an instinctive anticipation of what later becomes known as fourth generation warfare. The Massachusetts leadership understood that in this kind of warfare, the narrative was as important 
if not more so, than the physical events on the battlefield. Very interesting. It's almost anticipating some of the wars of the 20th and early 21st century, where the side that actually is weaker on the battlefield ends up winning, winning the overall war. Well, anyway, soon after Lexington and Concord, other people were, again, with almost no central leadership, rising up against what had been, quote-unquote, their government. And an early example of something like this takes place in May of 1775 in a part of Massachusetts that is now actually a part of Maine, coastal area. Um, This becomes known as Thompson's War, and it's not very well known, but it's an interesting little story. The reason it's called Thompson's War is because of a man named Samuel Thompson. Samuel Thompson was a 40-year-old tavern owner in Brunswick. Unusually for that region, he was a person of Scots-Irish ancestry. He was a self-made man. He'd gone from being dirt poor to being a fairly modestly successful guy and a respected uh, member of his community. Though he had little formal education, he was apparently a very charismatic man and a good speaker, and he had several times been elected as a local selectman. And in 1774, he was elected to head the Brunswick Militia, and also sat on the Committee of Safety uh, for Brunswick that had enforced the boycott against the British. Now, after the coercive acts had been passed, the insurgents in Brunswick, led by Samuel Thompson, decided to take very harsh measures against their political opponents, and they were very aggressive in going after loyalists in their area and physically beat several of them. When he learned of the events of Lexington and Concord, Samuel Thompson decided to take uh, even more aggressive measures. Instead, though, of marching uh, with his men down towards Boston, as so many other angry New Englanders were doing at the time, he decided to launch his own guerrilla war against the British Navy in his area, which would also hurt the local loyalist merchants. There was a small British warship, the HMS Canseau, in nearby Falmouth, as it was called then. Today, it's known as Portland, Maine. So in what was then called Falmouth, there was this British warship, the Canso, that was protecting British merchant ships in the area from insurgent vigilantes. Thompson led 50 Brunswick militiamen to Falmouth, and they launched an attack on the ship, which was really kind of um, ill-planned and initially looked hopeless, but they had a stroke of luck, and they happened to catch the ship's commander, a lieutenant with the last name Moat, I don't know his first name, on land and take him prisoner. And then a multi-day standoff ensued as the ship's second-in-command threatened to bombard the town with artillery from the ship if they didn't release Lieutenant Moat. But hundreds of other militiamen showed up from all around this area, and eventually, second officer of the Canso had to, um, you know, not make good on his threat to bombard the town uh, because he would have faced severe consequences if he did so. The standoff was ended when Lieutenant Moat was released back to the ship, but the Canso had to leave the area. There were just too many local militiamen mobilizing against them. And this event, this, you know, little event of, of, a, of a guy on his own initiative, taking matters into his own hands, inspired other militiamen in this area that today is Maine to capture another British warship and succeed in that case. Now, this story has a, a nasty ending where Lieutenant Moat brought back the Canso to Falmouth several months later and actually destroyed much of the town, um, we can assume, you know, out of anger and revenge for having been taken prisoner by the locals. 
But like all other British attempts to crack down with more force, this action ended up backfiring and resulted in increased support for the insurgents in the area. As T.H. Breen writes in American Insurgents, American Patriots, quote, the British learned a little late in the day that punishing insurgency, especially by attacking innocent people, is usually counterproductive, turning moderates into radicals and enhancing the reputation of the local armed forces, end quote. Now, Samuel Thompson was an interesting character who continued uh, his military career during the war, rose ultimately to the rank of Brigadier General, this self-made Scots-Irishman from up in the frontier areas of New England. After the Revolutionary War, Thompson continued as a prominent regional politician and a successful businessman. And at the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention of 1788, uh, the convention at which the state of Massachusetts was um, debating whether or not to ratify the new constitution, Samuel Thompson, in the words of T.H. Breen, quote, spoke passionately against the Constitution. He demanded annual elections for senators and congressmen. When critics chided him for his radicalism, Thompson responded, we cannot have too much liberty. He was particularly bothered by the Constitution's failure to outlaw racial slavery in the New Republic. As a revolutionary insurgent, he had fought for equality, and after sacrificing for independence, he asked those who remembered Thompson's war, Shall it be said that after we have established our own independence and freedom, we make slaves of others? Once again, he had spoken truth to power. Perhaps for this reason, obscurity was his reward. End quote from T.H. Breen. Yet probably none or very few of you at most have ever heard of Samuel Thompson before. The only monument that this uh, brave insurgent who also later fought against slavery in the political arena, the only monument he ever had named after him was a single gun gun battery in an obscure coastal fort in Maine during the Spanish-American War of 1898. As Breen puts it, quote, this is hardly sufficient. It is time to reconsider the stories we tell ourselves about our revolution and to restore Thompson and thousands of other American insurgents to our revolutionary history. For absent these patriots in the wings, there would quite possibly be no revolutionary history to celebrate, end quote. Now, another independent insurgent leader who was a bit more successful and a bit better known and who had more men following him than Samuel Thompson did was a guy named Ethan Allen and his followers known as the Green Mountain Boys. And Ethan Allen's story originates in the lands that today are known as the state of Vermont. And they were very much a frontier area back in the 18th century. And the lands themselves were in dispute exactly who they belonged to, both politically and in terms of property. What had happened was, in the 1760s, uh, the governor of New Hampshire had sold a lot of land inexpensively to settlers, many of whom were only kind of moderately wealthy or, or or even less than that. Thousands of people moved into this area to settle, again, the area that today is Vermont. But the colony of New York which, by the way, in case you don't know, had a very long history of severe elitism and oligarchy in almost every way regarding its colonial government, especially in regard to land grants. I mean, land in colonial New York was something where like a handful of oligarchs owned hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres, and most average people could not get access to decent land. 
this oligarchical colony of New York claimed that it had already granted those lands uh, by legal right to a handful of rich elite New Yorkers. And the British imperial government sided with New York's claims to those lands over New Hampshire, you know, having granted them to uh, less elite type of peoples. But when New Yorkers tried to actually take possession of these lands they were claiming and kick the settlers off of them in the late 1760s and early 1770s, they ran into very stiff resistance led by Ethan Allen and his men who became known as the Green Mountain Boys. Just as an aside, by the way, whenever you see a situation where there's a small elite group of individuals getting massive amounts of land and uh, the, the vast majority of people in an area having little or no access to land, that's pretty much always going to be the result of some sort of state action. You can always find the state's fingerprints on that coming about because without it, there usually arises some sort of homesteading arrangement. People actually are pretty good at working out basic homesteading practices, even in the absence of formal laws regarding that. They sort of have a sense of, you know, how much land can you actually use yourself to farm and whatever. Whereas when the state's involved, they can just give humongous arbitrary land grants to their buddies. You find this not only in colonial New York, but also, for example, in early colonial Virginia, where massive pieces of land are given to a handful of elite guys, oftentimes long before they've ever set foot or eye on the land itself. Meanwhile, the people who are actually out there on the lands are not given um, the, the legal ability to own them or make any sort of claim to them. So this is always the result of state action, not of like natural free market forces when you get these huge landed oligarchs. Anyway, getting back to Ethan Allen, uh, though he and his men were very effective in preventing New Yorkers from dispossessing them of their lands, they actually avoided killing anybody in the process. Ethan Allen's a very interesting character. He was definitely a frontier badass. He was an anti-elitist, and in many ways, he was definitely an instinctive libertarian. When he sent one New Yorker home after capturing him, he told this guy, go your own way now and complain to that damn scoundrel, your governor. God damn your governor, laws, king, council, and assembly, end quote. The colony of New Hampshire briefly supported Allen and the settlers, but then it stopped and basically sided with New York. And at that point, Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys kept successfully resisting by themselves uh, against New York incursions into what they considered by homesteading right their lands. Ethan Allen seems to have instinctively understood the power of popular guerrilla or insurgent warfare against larger conventional forces that on paper have much more firepower. Murray Rothbard, who's clearly a big fan of Ethan Allen, writes this about him in Conceived in Liberty, quote, Allen perceived the potential of a new form of warfare on the scene of world history. Why must all battle be waged in formal ranks on open fields? Just because all European military lore said so? Allen did not see why these hidebound rules should not be transcended. In particular, he saw that a revolutionary war, a people's war, was best waged in a far different and a far more revolutionary manner. End quote. The New Yorkers had much more strength in conventional military terms backed by um, the colonial government of New York and ultimately by the British imperial government, but they had hidden weaknesses as compared to the Green Mountain Boys. In particular, Ethan Allen understood the inherent advantages his people had of having a friendly local population and having intimate knowledge of the local terrain, and they used that to their advantage. 
Quote again from Rothbard. As settlers themselves, the rebel forces were of that population and could blend quickly and easily with it. This itself greatly offset the specialization of the enemy. These part-time rebels, so camouflaged, just could not easily be spotted, isolated, or captured. Therefore, able to move among the people and on familiar terrain as fish and water, the rebel band had the great advantage of mobility and speed. It also had the advantage of surprise, for the support of the surrounding populace gave it an enormous intelligence advantage over the enemy. The rebels came to know where the enemy was, but the enemy knew virtually nothing about the rebels. The rebels, therefore, could, could and must hit and run, hit and run, strike and fade away, harassing and weakening and demoralizing the enemy while keeping it always off balance. These advantages and others the far-sighted Allen had come to see. In short, he perceived that the proper path to victory for a people's revolution against a well-armed state force is guerrilla warfare, not a foolhardy rush to open confrontation and instant defeat, end quote. Ethan Allen also understood the need to be restrained in his use of force and coercion, both to keep popular support, you know, if you start really doing nasty, violent, psychotic things, even the locals whom you're, you know, basically defending might might get disillusioned with you, and also to avoid having the New York forces take any extreme reprisals against local noncombatants. So again, as Rothbard writes, quote, So remarkable was their minimizing of coercion that in all their battles and skirmishes the Green Mountain Boys never killed a single man, end quote. Throughout about five years of conflict, only one of the Green Mountain Boys was ever even wounded. A few New Yorkers were whipped and a few had their homes burned, uh, but that was about the extent of the physical violence. Most of the time what they would capture, what they would do is capture somebody, maybe threaten him and then send him home to New York. Um, at most they might, you know, do something to his, his home if he came and built a house on a piece of land that a Green Mountain Boy believed uh, was rightfully his. Though he looked and acted and spoke like a rough frontiersman, Ethan Allen was actually fairly knowledgeable and literate. Even though he didn't have a lot of formal schooling, he had apparently learned a lot of Enlightenment thought from a Boston radical intellectual named Dr. Thomas Young. And um, in his manifesto, entitled Brief Narrative, uh, published in 1774, Ethan Allen clearly articulated a Lockean, meaning John Locke, sort of a defense of the settler's property as against the state's claims. So this low-level ongoing insurgent warfare had been going on in what today is Vermont for years when Lexington and Concord broke out in the spring of 1775. So naturally, when the fighting broke out in Massachusetts in 1775, the Green Mountain Boys were... Um, almost automatically inclined to side with those insurgents having been engaged in low-level insurgency against the state themselves for about five years at that point. And it wasn't long until Ethan Allen was offering the services of himself and his Green Mountain Boys to um, the Massachusetts authorities and ultimately to the Continental Congress. And one of the ideas Ethan Allen came up with that he was able to get a green light on was to go after a British fort called Ticonderoga. Now, this fort lies along Lake Champlain, just across uh, the lake from the present-day state of Vermont on the New York side. And in the spring of 1775, the fort had been neglected and had only a small token force there, and it wasn't even being very well maintained in terms of the facilities. And the reason was, of course, over a decade before, the British had taken Canada away from France. And with Canada no longer, you know, run by the French government, it no longer posed a threat 
to New York. And so this little frontier fort, which, you know, in the days when, when Canada was still French was really important is now just kind of like a little, you know, barely used, almost forgotten outpost. But Ethan Allen, who of course knew that territory very well, looked at it and said, Hey, that fort is an easy target. And if we take it and we occupy it, then we can block the British from using that route down that valley where Lake Champlain is uh, to invade, to, to send military forces from Canada um, down into the, the New York border area with New England, which would have allowed the British to um, potentially cut off New England from the remaining you know, middle and southern colonies. So they decided to seize Ticonderoga because it wasn't well defended, but it was in a very important location. So Ethan Allen gets sent out with his Green Mountain Boys and also um, along with them gets sent a young and very competent but very conventional uh, militia officer from Connecticut named Benedict Arnold. They go after Ticonderoga in early May. Benedict Arnold actually got a commission from Massachusetts and then kind of like went and caught up and he and Arnold, uh, sorry, Ar- Arnold and Allen constantly are butting heads. They're arguing about who's really supposed to be in charge. They have very different styles. Benedict Arnold is very much a by the book conventional soldier. Ethan Allen, of course, is the opposite. And so they have an interesting time. Uh, somehow, despite constantly butting heads, they manage to lead their force up to Ticonderoga and successfully take the fort. And the cannons seized there were later transported down to Boston to help in the siege against the British forces that continued on for uh, over a year after Lexington and Concord. So all this is happening and more, you know, plenty of other little little actions are taking place here and there besides just what I've mentioned. And so what, what's going on with the so-called leaders during all this? Well, they certainly passed some good sounding resolutions in May and into the summer of 1775. They passed some good resolutions. They, they did some nice words. For example, in July of 1775, the Continental Congress passed something called the Declaration of Causes and Necessities, uh, Necessity of Taking Up Arms, which was written by Thomas Jefferson and ironically John Dickinson, who's later going to be the main obstacle in the Congress to declaring independence. And then a few days after that, they sent an open letter to the British people explaining why they felt they needed to defend themselves by force. But even in these documents where they were explaining why they were arming themselves and taking action, they still were not willing to officially declare independence. In fact, in some of these documents and resolutions and things, they even explicitly said that was not their goal, that they were simply just trying to um, persuade the British authorities to go back to respecting their rights as Englishmen. Even understand, it's very important, even while real battles are taking place in the spring and summer of 1775, still the alleged leaders down there in Philadelphia are not able to make an agreement to write up a piece of paper saying we're officially declaring our independence. So I ask you the question, who's really leading in this instance? Is it the fancy guys with powdered wigs and knee breeches in Philadelphia, or is it regular people? Is it people like Ethan Allen, Samuel Thompson, John Parker? The Second Continental Congress, as it was known, uh, began meeting in May 1775 in Philadelphia. And despite Lexington and Concord, there was still not enough support to do something as drastic as putting ink to parchment 
Um, you know, it would just have to be putting lead to flesh on the part of regular people for over a year until these guys could bring themselves to put ink to parchment. Nonetheless, in June, they authorized the creation of a Continental Army, which they set the goal to build it up to 20,000. The idea was they would start off with the New England militia who had mobilized to fight in Massachusetts. That would be like the, the nucleus. And then they would build with forces from other parts of the, of the colonies on top of that. They also chose a commander-in-chief. They chose a Virginia militia colonel named George Washington, who actually had relatively little military experience. In fact, if you were doing it based purely on resume, George Washington would not be the obvious choice to be the commander-in-chief at all. Now, this decision, first to make a centrally controlled big standing regular army and also to make a conservative Virginia oligarch the commander-in-chief of it was a decision that seems out of character for many of the radicals such as Joseph Warren and Samuel Adams of Massachusetts who who did support both creating the army and making Washington the commander-in-chief Washington was made the commander-in-chief by unanimous vote however the reason why People like Warren and Adams, who normally would not have liked the idea of a huge standing army, much less of, a, of an oligarch in charge of it, decided that for political reasons, um, creating this army and putting Washington in charge of it was the best way to ensure that the 13 colonies would hold together in a unified front against Britain. There was at least one other guy available who, if you went by uh, resume rather than by politics and other factors should have been a more obvious choice to be commander in chief of American forces. And that was a guy named Charles Lee. Charles Lee was far more experienced and knowledgeable in military matters, especially in regards to unconventional warfare. Washington's only experience was a little bit of service during the seven years war in which he mostly failed. Charles Lee had a long career uh, in the British Army and also as a mercenary. And, and, and if you were just to look at all the, all the accomplishments of his military career, um, Charles Lee clearly outclassed Washington. But Charles Lee had problems that prevented him from not being a frontrunner for the choice to command the Continental Army. One was he was a relatively recent arrival from Britain. He was not actually born in the American colonies. He was also a bit of a hothead maverick, and um, don't, you know, underestimate this. Washington is from Virginia, which was the largest colony, both in terms of population and in terms of landmass. Virginians tend to get lots of important jobs and prestigious positions and things within the Continental Congress and within the Continental Army. And this is not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that Thomas Jefferson is made the chairman of the committee that drafts the Declaration of Independence, for example. Yes, he had a reputation as a great writer, but also he was a Virginian, right? And the idea was Virginia had to be 110% on board for the revolution, or the revolution wouldn't work. Virginia was the largest colony. It's also centrally located. So if Virginia didn't stay on board with the revolution, 
uh, the revolution is not going to not going to succeed. So politically, that's why there was a big push to make a Virginian the commander in chief, even though the initial bulk of the troops were New Englanders. And there were some people who kind of wanted a New England commander, but they were uh, ultimately all persuaded to uh, these members of Congress to vote for Washington. Well, I'll talk more about Charles Lee maybe next episode because he's a really interesting character that very few people know about. But on the subject of Washington, I guess the first thing I would say is it depends whether you like Washington or not, in part depends on how much of the facts you know, and in part also depends on your perception of what was the American Revolution really supposed to be all about? Was it really supposed to be revolutionary? Was it really supposed to be about liberating people as much as had been done, uh, you know, more than had been done up to that point in history, maximizing human freedom? If that's the case, then Washington is not a good choice to be your general in chief. And then, you know, that, of course, springboards him into politics later because Washington was an oligarch. He was a man who had a lot of wealth and prestige and owed it all simply to being born in the right family rather than to merit. He did not earn it. He was not a self-made man. Even his military commission was due entirely to the fact uh, of his family. This is also a man who um, owned literally an army of slaves and he's going to lead the fight for freedom. Well, maybe not, because Washington and his type, who later become the Federalist Party after the Revolution, these are guys who actually didn't have a problem with the British imperial system other than the fact that they weren't the ones running it. These are not guys who thought the revolution was supposed to achieve anything really new. They just thought that, um, you know, at the top of exploiting the resources and manpower of North America should not be the British government, but instead should be a bunch of homegrown American oligarchs. Now, as part of being a conservative oligarch, uh, Washington was, in terms of real estate, probably the richest man in America. And again, in terms of how he got that real estate. Did he go out and homestead and, um, you know, work vigorously with his own two hands to, to clear land and whatever? No, he used his political connections and so on to basically claim vast pieces of land, just like those oligarchs in New York that um, Ethan Allen was fighting against. So he's not really himself that much of a big believer in any sort of liberty-minded revolution. He just wants the uh, the zip code of who's running the state apparatus in America uh, to be an American zip code rather than a British zip code. And I know, you know, you don't have to tell me, oh, the British don't have zip codes. It's a figure of speech. And of course, the choice of Washington to command the army um, has military consequences and political consequences. And military consequences, it means that the American war is going to be fought mostly in a conventional fashion, using European-style tactics and procedures, even though guerrilla warfare had already proven itself in the case of Ethan Allen and in the case of Lexington and Concord to be highly effective against British regulars. It played to American strengths and against British weakness. Besides that, also guerrilla war had political um, consequences that were more in keeping with liberty as the goal. In other words, if you're going to have a large conventional standing army, that's going to require more big government, more taxes, more intrusion upon people's rights and properties in order to field that army and sustain it. 
It's going to steer the American government in a certain direction, down a certain path, that waging a guerrilla war might not. And Murray Rothbard has a very interesting chapter on this. It's chapter three of volume four of Conceived in Liberty. I'll just read you a few excerpts from this chapter. I I highly recommend uh, uh, reading this, really this entire book, but, you know, quote, The Americans at the very outset were therefore faced with a choice of extreme importance in conducting their revolution. Unfortunately, they saw their alternatives but dimly, although here and there, leaders could see the vital issues with piercing clarity. Their choice not only determined the outcome and duration of the war, it also determined the permanent complexion and structure of any independent America that might emerge. On the one hand, they could fight the war in European fashion, gathering together a standard European army, organizing it according to European-style totalitarian discipline, conscripting men and vast supplies to feed and equip the army, and then meeting the British in formal open combat. On the other hand, they could run a new style of war, a radical people's war, a war of national liberation, a guerrilla war resting on individual responsibility, mobility, and surprise. A guerrilla war would be enormously less expensive than an orthodox one. Moreover, whereas orthodox warfare would require taxation, conscription, hierarchy, discipline, and the creation of a vast, unproductive, and expensive state bureaucracy to direct and supply the armies while draining the production of society, a guerrilla war could be run individualistically, relying on the zeal of the individual guerrilla, and would entail virtually no central bureaucracy or centralized confiscation of property to finance the war. In brief, a guerrilla war would be the libertarian way to fight a war fully consistent with the American revolutionary ideals of liberty and equality of rights, and therefore the only way to achieve the libertarian goals of the revolution. A European-style orthodox war would be heavily statist and would inevitably lead to the resumption of the very statism, the taxes, the restrictions, the bureaucracy, which the colonists were waging the revolution to escape. End quote. So by... Creating a conventional army and by choosing Washington, this very conventional-minded individual, to lead it, a man who didn't really want any serious change in American society. After all, why would he? He was at or near the top of the pyramid. All he wants to do is make sure that, you know, he and his fellow homegrown oligarchs are at the top of the pyramid, rather than having another layer above them back in London. So why would he want massive changes uh, in American society? Charles Lee, by the way, was not only a proponent of guerrilla warfare, he was also much more of a a radical, revolutionary libertarian, and Charles Lee being a very educated sort of a guy, much more so than Washington, much more of a thinking man's general than Washington, um, Charles Lee also understood the connection, that by fighting a, a guerrilla war against the British, not only would that be very effective, it would also dovetail much better with the goals of the revolution of, of its ideology than would building a large conventional army. Sure enough, when Washington took command of the Continental Army, he, you know, mostly is taking over a bunch of New England militia who were very democratic, very individualistic. They elected their officers, officers and men socialized together and so on. There was not this rigid hierarchy. And Washington was just absolutely aghast at this. And so he quickly set about inflicting standardization, 
conventionalizing of tactics, stamping out all of the individualistic and egalitarian spirit and practices amongst these New Englanders, um, increasing punishments vastly for even minor infractions. He increased hierarchy within the Continental Army in every possible way. For example, he uh, pushed vigorously for massive pay raises for officers, but not for men. He clamped down on things like uh, men fraternizing with officers and so on. Um, He pushed for uniforms uh, to really, really um, emphasize rank and hierarchy. In other words, he's trying to make these New England militia that had won the day at Lexington and Concord into just a clone of the British Army. And the fact of the matter is, the British Army is going to be better than being the British, better at being the British Army than some third-rate American copy of the British Army is going to be, right? That's like if you're a good wrestler and you're going to go fight MMA against a guy who's a really good boxer, like, oh, gee, let me try and get him in a boxing match, right? Let's try and trade punches. Um, wouldn't it be smarter to go to the ground where, where you're more, you know, at home and where he doesn't know what he's doing? But that's not how Washington saw it. He was aristocratic gentleman from uh, Virginia. And so he's been raised to think that there's only one proper way to wage war. And that's basically the conventional, you know, European British way to wage war. And any other method is kind of like not legitimate. Well, after imposing all of these changes on the Continental Army that he took over, uh, Rothbard sums it up as follows, quote, In a few short months, Washington had succeeded in extirpating a zealous, happy, individualistic people's army and transforming it into yet another statist army filled with bored, resentful, and even mutinous soldiery, end quote. Now, even while the Continental Congress was building an army and picking its commander-in-chief, they still did not declare independence. In fact, though they made that statement I mentioned before as to why they were taking up arms and began making all sorts of preparations for further war, um, they also sent something called the Olive Branch Petition to the king, in which they asked him personally to intercede to reconcile the colonies with the mother country. It was based on the belief that some of the more uh, you know, moderate people, some of the, the leaders that, while they might not be happy with the British government's actions, still nonetheless were not yet down for full independence. Um, they had a lot of these sorts of guys had this idea that's very common amongst uh, people towards towards their great leader, that the king is a decent guy, it's just parliament and maybe the king's advisors who have been screwing us over, and if only the king knew the, the our side of the story, if only the king had good information, he would side with us and make things right. So that's what the Olive Branch Petition is. Now, more... Um, More radical members of the Congress thought it was a waste of time. A few of the radical members of Congress realized it was worth doing, though, because if the king responded as they were pretty sure he would, and he did, then the radicals, when the moderates said, well, let's let's try and talk it out, the the radicals would be able to say, well, we did, and the king told us to go to hell. Well, when this Olive Branch petition, which was largely pushed for by the um, moderate member of the Congress, a guy named John Dickinson from Pennsylvania, who was not not happy with the British government, but still did not want full independence for, uh, for, for a variety of reasons. When the Olive Branch petition got to the king, his response was he declared the colonies, quote, in open and avowed rebellion, 
which is essentially like declaring war on them, and he also began sending more British troops over. And soon, the British government embargoed all of the colonies in North America. And essentially, from that point forward, from the king's uh, rejection of the Olive Olive Branch petition and his declaration of the colonies as being an open and avowed rebellion, he's basically declared war on them and all the men involved with the Continental Congress and all the other, you know, different levels of what was emerging as uh, the, the American governmental and military apparatus are now basically officially traitors. And potentially, if they lose will face what traitorly face. And so this is going to require years and years and years of violence to settle. One more thing I'll mention briefly that the Continental Congress did do in the summer of 1775 that actually was of some substantive use was they issued a call to form up nine companies of riflemen from the backcountry areas of Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. And up until this point, the Continental Army was mostly consisting of New England militia that had been sort of adopted as Continental Army forces. But now there's going to be um, some early soldiers being sent from these other colonies, Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. All the fighting of Lexington and Concord in those early battles in New England was done both sides armed with smoothbore muskets. But in some areas of the colonies, they had actual rifles. Now, these are still muzzle-loading muskets, but they're rifled muskets, meaning they have uh, rifling or grooves carved into the, the bore of the weapon. These were often known as Kentucky rifles. Now, they were made in Pennsylvania, for the most part, by German immigrants in the colonies, but they were known as Kentucky rifles because many men who bought them took them out to the frontier areas, which were um, a, a huge piece of the frontier area back then was simply known by the catch-all phrase of Kentucky. So these were known as Kentucky rifles. And a lot of these backcountry riflemen that end up being recruited to go supplement the Continental Army are Scots-Irish, or what Murray Rothbard refers to as Ulster Scots, and conceived in liberty. These guys are even more democratic and individualistic-minded than the New England militia were. The Kentucky rifle was really the sniper rifle of its day, by, by which I mean it was much more accurate and longer range than a typical smoothbore musket. A typical smoothbore musket in the hands of a crack shot can maybe do 60, 70 yards on a man-sized target. A Kentucky rifle can do three times that or more in the hands of a skilled operator. Now, the downside is that the Kentucky rifle is a little bit slower to, to operate than a smoothbore musket. So you're trading um, less speed for more accuracy. These uh, riflemen end up being very important and helpful in several major battles and operations throughout the war. Think of them as like the special forces snipers of their day. Um, When they're employed in ways that play to their strengths, basically sniping, these riflemen were superb and very effective. But when they were incorrectly used by some of the dumber generals and commanders um, trying to use these guys as conventional soldiers for close quarters fighting, didn't work very well. That they weren't personally suited to it. Neither were their skill sets or or their uh, their temperament and their training. So we'll we'll mention them in at least one future episode on the American Revolution. Um, talk a bit about Daniel Morgan and some of the other some of the other rifleman outfits during the war. Now, also in the summer of 1775, there was a, there was another pretty significant battle that took place near Boston that gets known as Bunker Hill. 
It took place on June 17, 1775. What happened was the colonists who were besieging Boston received intelligence that British troops were going to move to take control of some hills near Charlestown, which up to that point had been unoccupied, including Bunker Hill. And the colonists quickly sent in their own men to get there first, and they began digging in and fortifying. Well, sure enough, when the British came in that morning and found that the Americans had gotten there and dug in first, um, they attacked. And it was a brutal fight. The British just kept charging over and over, and the Americans put up stiff resistance and um, demonstrated, again, superior marksmanship. Even though they were using the same equivalent, you know, smoothbore muskets as the British, they were better shots. Now, the British eventually won, meaning that they took the hill and that the colonists left the hill. But the colonists were able to retreat in good order. It was not a rout. They were not wiped out or captured in mass. And the fact of the matter was that during the battle, the British had more than twice as many casualties. And again, like Lexington and Concord, casualties amongst officers were particularly high. And furthermore, their seizure of the hill did nothing to strengthen their position regarding Boston. They ended up having to abandon Boston eventually anyway. So... Bunker Hill was one of these things where it's technically a British battle victory, but it's a really hollow, empty victory. And in fact, the performance of the Americans at Bunker Hill actually did more to boost American morale than it did British. Now, interestingly, British General Burgoyne, John Burgoyne, in a letter written several months after the Battle of Bunker Hill, seems to indicate the real reason why the British just kept almost stupidly charging these very strong American positions on Bunker Hill, that perhaps a big motivating factor for for using these frontal attacks was the desire to reassert the superiority of conventional militaries and conventional tactics. General Burgoyne wrote this, quote, I believe in most states of the world, as well as in our own, that respect and control and subordination of government depend in a great measure upon the idea that trained troops are invincible against any numbers or any position of undisciplined rabble. And this idea was a little in suspense since the 19th of April. Now, one more significant military operation that occurred uh, near the end of 1775 was the Continental Army, parts of it launched an attack on Quebec, hoping that French Canadians would join the American insurgents against the British government. Long story short, the expedition failed. Because of time, I won't get into the details of it. Uh, Benedict Arnold was one of the leaders of the expedition. He ended up getting wounded. Um, Daniel Morgan, who was the leader of one of the Virginia Rifleman companies that were raised that summer that accompanied this expedition, um, along with 300 others, were taken prisoner by the British. So... I'll, I'll just mention that uh, in two wars, America has invaded Canada in the Revolutionary War and in the War of 1812, and both times the Canadians kicked America's ass. I'll just say that. And I'm not Canadian, so I have no dog in this fight, but that's, that's the reality. Technically speaking, against America, Canada is 2-0, and oh, so they're not just better at hockey and maple syrup. Well, anyway, I better wrap up this episode. I'll just say that during 1775, the people rose up in a true revolution in arguably the finest moment in American history to those who truly value liberty. But at the same time, their alleged leaders in Philadelphia 
did relatively little of substance beyond words. They did do a few real things related to the military, some of which were useful, such as forming the rifleman companies. However, by creating the Continental Army, and especially by choosing the conservative oligarch George Washington, with his strong preference for hierarchy, draconian procedures, authoritarianism, and conventional tactics as its commander, whether they realized it or not, they knocked over the first domino of the counter-revolution that prevented the American Revolution from living up to its potential as a liberating force. Next time, we'll look at the next phase of the war running roughly from 1776 to 1778. Thomas Paine will change a lot of hearts and minds with his pen, and the Continental Congress will finally get around to writing up a Declaration of Independence after only about 15 months of full-on warfare against the British. This is also the period in which major fighting shifts more towards the middle colonies, places like New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware, and in which Washington further transforms the Continental Army and its tactics, and in the process, damn near loses the war. These and many other things from that phase of the war will be covered next time in episode 60 of the Dangerous History Podcast, so I hope you'll tune in for that. As always, if you have any comments about this particular show, please feel free to leave them in the comments section for this episode at the website profcj.org. You can also email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe to the show um, via my website. You can subscribe to the website, put in your email at profcj.org, and you'll get um, an email every time there's a new post to the site. You can subscribe to the podcast itself on iTunes, Stitcher. Remember, there are several ways you can support the show. One is simply to spread the word about it any way you can to people that you think might want to hear it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in places like iTunes or Stitcher to help encourage others to give the show a try. You can also help the show financially in a variety of ways. You can donate directly via PayPal. Um, you can also donate Bitcoin. And for those, you'd go to profcj.org donate. You can also help the show financially by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through my affiliate links on profcj.org and then I get a little cut of your transaction at no additional cost to you. So I hope you'll consider supporting the show if you have not already. Uh, to those of you who have been supporting the show, I really appreciate it. It definitely helps. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. <laughs>